Welcome to the Winging It Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond, where every Monday I'll be joined by guests to talk about their travel stories, travel tips, backpacking advice, and so much more. Right now, I'm taking the podcast on the road traveling with me. So tune in every week for short form episodes detailing all my travels alongside my Monday guest episode. Are you a backpacker, traveler, gap year student, or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. This is a casual, informative podcast designed for you to inspire you to travel. There'll be stories to tell, tips to share, and experiences to inspire. Welcome to the show. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, where I have a returning guest back on by the name of Frank Paradis, and he's here today to talk about his three-month Congo trip overland last year. And also, we're going to have a little catch-up because I've not spoken to Frank probably for uh, eight or nine months, but we're here to catch up today, talk about his travels. So, Frank, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Whereabouts in the world are you right now at the time of recording? I am in Eastern Europe, so quite a change from uh, last time where I was in uh, Namibia, last time we spoke. That seems a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think it was in July of 2022. Yeah, so a lot of change since then. You've been on the road since then, obviously traveling around the world. I am now traveling too, so very different uh, type of scenarios now. But we're going to talk today about Congo. So please can you tell the listeners, first of all, where were you before the Congo and what was your plan going into the Congo? Yeah, so essentially when we caught up last time, I was in Namibia, northern Namibia, and then I crossed into Angola in August of 2022. And um, my plan was to, was quite an ambitious plan. So I was drawn to the challenge of trying to overland the entire Congo. I, I was going to enter from the southwest. Uh, if people have a map of the Congo near them, it's going to be easier to follow. So I wanted to get to Kinshasa, the capital city. Mm -hmm. And I was, messing, I was really intrigued by the, um, the rainforest, you know, the, the mighty Congo jungle, which is the second largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon. And I was thinking, okay, let's see if I can overland this whole area all the way to Kisangani, which is the large Congolese city in the northeast. And my, my dream was, let's just try to do it all by land or by, you know, river and boat, but let's not use any airplanes so I can see as much on the ground as mm -hmm. I can, you know, see the villagers, the villages, the normal jungle life and make it all the way. And just briefly, there is a famous... Um, British travel writer, I don't know if you know about him, Tim Butcher, but he, he in 20, 2004, he did a journey to try to overland the DRC, and he did part of it successfully, but then once he got about halfway through the jungle, he gave up and he took a helicopter to Kinshasa, so he didn't manage to overland uh -huh. it. And okay. I knew of, there was a British couple who managed to overland the uh, DRC with their own vehicle. They had a, a, a Land Rover and they were with a friend. So there was three of them with their own four by four vehicle. And they took a different route than I did. They, they, they basically used this. They went through the Savannah area and then yeah. all the way uh, up north. But they were you know, pretty much the only people on the Internet that I could uh, find who had managed to do something similar to what I was planning to do. But they had their own vehicle and they avoided most of the jungle by sticking to the savannah as much as they could. So it was kind of a question mark, you know, would I make it? Would I not make it? There were, <laughs> I, I didn't even know it was going to work or not, but I, I said, I want to try this challenge. I want to, 
and also why it was why was the Congo so interesting to me? It's because a lot of the world nowadays, as we've discussed in our previous uh, conversations, you know, it's quite open to tourism. You know, you go mm-hmm. to Paris and you know what to expect. You buy a ticket here. You know, you know what the Eiffel Tower is going to look like. There's tourist infrastructure, but I knew the Congo is probably one of those countries in the world where there's the you know, the, the least tourist infrastructure, it's, it's almost <laughs> non-existent. So I knew it was going to be the biggie, the Mount Everest of travel. And <laughs> I, was, I was interested in that. That's great. And that's a fantastic aim to have. It must have been pretty scary, maybe, or daunting. Or were you yeah. excited oh, yeah. at the same time? Uh, all, all of them at the same time. Daunting, scary, excited. So I was excited because I knew it was going to be... To give you an idea of how scared I was, mm-hmm. I thought I need to do it on this trip because I've, I've just done Afghanistan a few months prior. And I thought I want to use the momentum of the confidence of having done Afghanistan successfully to yep. do the DRC. Because if I go back home now, I will be too scared to then leave home again and do the Congo because that's how scared I was of the DRC of the stories. I'd heard of travelers being robbed of all kinds of stories, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean... If you, I mean, you know, terrible stories that I've heard about the DRC. So I, I was thinking if I don't do it now, I'll never do it because I'll lose my confidence momentum that I got from my Afghanistan journey. So I was kind of using the fuel from my previous uh, travel uh, accomplishment to tell myself, you know, you can do it. Come on. If you manage to do Afghanistan, you're going to be okay with the Congo. But I was still pretty scared. That's interesting that you say if you went home, you might lose the confidence to go out and do a trip like that. That's, that's quite interesting. Oh what, yeah, what, that's how scary, scared I was of it. Is that specific just to the Congo or do you think maybe a certain amount of countries are like the Congo in terms of like feeling that scared? Um, I would say there are a few that are known to be hard and difficult, but the mm-hmm. Congo scared me specifically because I knew that um, it was super corrupt and I knew that everybody who went there had to come up with a strategy on how to avoid um, bribing officials who constantly ask you uh, for, for bribes. And that, that was I wasn't too scared of the malaria because I'd already had malaria in Sudan. I think we talked about it last yeah. time. And I was, I was like, okay, yeah, I know there's going to be tropical disease and stuff, but it's just risky in general because there are health risks uh, you know, I mean, the Congo is where um, the disease Ebola originally comes from. Yeah. Um, originally, and even HIV, the HIV virus, originally it comes from a it was found in the uh, in the Congo, the original moment. Mm-hmm. So a lot of health problems and you know human um, obstacles too in terms of instability. I knew that the government um, didn't really control much, and it, it's kind of chaotic. So it's just known among travelers as being one of the hardest countries to properly do. I mean, if you just fly into Kinshasa for three days and then you get out, fine, you'll probably be okay. Or if you just yeah. go to see the gorillas near Rwanda, you know, mo- a lot of people, when they go to the Congo, it's to see the gorillas near R- Rwanda. Yeah. So they go with a guide, everything's prepared for them. They just, boom, go to the gorillas, take a few pictures, go to the mm-hmm. restaurant, sleep at the hotel and get out after three days. And that's, their experience of the DRC. So if, if people do that, that's okay. It's kind of easy. But the moment you do anything besides trying to see the gorillas, it becomes really hard. I think we'll come on to that 
on the report because <laughs> uh, right. Frank here has written an extensive report, which is basically the base of our notes for this interview. And it's a fantastic read and fascinating. It's so fascinating. But we're going to talk about some of that today. Um, first, a couple of like admin questions, if you like. Uh, the visa process and also your budget. What was in your mind for that? So the visa process, that's interesting. In itself, that's hard. So most of the, in fact, the policy is that the DRC normally doesn't give visas to non-residents. So you have to be in your home country to even get a visa before you even think of going to the, the Congo. Oh, wow. And so that in itself was hard. And I was in Eastern Africa, I was in Kenya, and I tried to get a visa. The Nairobi embassy turned away. You're not a resident. Goodbye. <laughs> we don't want to see you. So already there's one failure. And I was like, no, I'm going to keep trying. So I thought, okay, I'm in Kenya. Okay, let me try Burundi. Uh, it's nearby. Maybe I'll have a chance there. And uh, yeah, I went to Burundi. First, they said, no, we don't want to talk to you because you're not a resident of the country. I insisted to talk to higher ups and higher ups and higher ups. Eventually, I got friendly with one of the officials. And because I speak French as a French Canadian, it was easier. We could kind of chat and, and you know, build a rapport. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? If you if you get a uh, an invitation letter, you know, it'll, it'll be fine. You know, you, you can apply here. So then I had to find someone who would be trustworthy enough to give me an invitation letter. And, you know, you have to send them money online. And you don't huh. know if they're going to actually give you the document or not. Yeah. You know, are you being scammed? So even just getting the visa was a bit of an ordeal before you even <laughs> think of getting to the Congo. And I sent him, you know, the money. I believe it was $150 for the invitation letter, which is quite expensive. And thankfully, he did uh, give me the document I needed. Went back to the embassy, managed to, um, to successfully get the visa for three months multi-entry from the date of entry. Mm -hmm. So that was, quite, uh, that was quite good. I was like, yes, finally I got the, the visa. Because if you talk to people, a lot of the... The, the, the hot, one of the hardest visas to get in Africa is actually the DLC visa, especially for people who overland, you know, the famous Cape Town to um, Cape Town to Morocco, Western yeah. route. Western. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of overlanders struggle with the Nigerian visa mm -hmm. and they struggle with the DLC visas. These are the two big uh, annoying visas for a lot of overlanders to get. So, in fact, most people skip the DLC. When they're in Angola, they just get on a ferry and go to the Cabinda Peninsula, which right. also belongs to Angola. And then they just carry on through the Republic ah. of Congo, the French Congo. Most people try to avoid the DRC because it's just annoying to get the visa to, to cross. Ah, very interesting. And did you have a budget for the three months in the Congo? I did. So I got. it's interesting. The number that I came up with was in, inspired by Tim Butcher's book, uh blood river yeah so in the book he carries two thousand us dollars uh with him and i'd read his book and by the way no I, initially i said you know he failed halfway through but i still respect him as a as an adventurer and as an author so if he's listening to this no offense to you tim butcher i i love what you did <laughs> and i love your book so please no hard feelings i i hope he takes it the right way but i got inspired by his number of two thousand dollars and i thought you know what i'll try to do the same so I would have $2,000 cash on me mm -hmm. for the entire journey, which I, I knew was going to take maybe two to three months. And um, I knew I couldn't rely on, you know, getting banks in the middle of the jungle yeah. or, or getting ATM. So I had to carry the cash on me. Is that an extra stress? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because it's a, it is an extra stress. You know, I don't like having $2,000 cash <laughs> on me because 
you know, sometimes you, you take canoes and rivers and you yeah, know, yeah. you're really like, they're going to capsize and you're going to lose everything and you're going to lose cash and, uh, or it rains sometimes just tropical rain and it, it pulls into your bag and you're like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? I did put it in a Ziploc bag, but nonetheless, you never know, um, what's going to happen. So yeah, it was an extra stress. Absolutely. The problem with us dollars is it's not protected against the rain, isn't it? Or water, like, unlike maybe something like Australia where their currency is actually water resistant, I think. So you could carry that with no worries apart from obviously getting robbed, but yeah, that's an extra stress in itself. So where did you start your journey? So I started, um, from the Angolan border, um, a town called Kindupulu, and that was actually on the Congolese side. Kindupulu is the entry where I, I got in, and um, yeah, that's where I entered. And I was very happy because it's such a remote border post; they almost never see foreign uh, people coming yeah. in the Congo through that area. That the uh, immigration agent uh, was so happy to have me that he's like, "Hey, you know, come to my house. You'll be my guest tonight, and you know." I'm going to treat you with some food and local beer and uh, very, very nice men. Uh, it was a good first impression of the country. That guy was super friendly. He actually gave me his bed to sleep in and he told me that was um, what his parents had t taught him when he was growing up. That if somebody comes to your house, you need to give them oh, wow. your bed. So it was my first day was very reassuring. Very <laughs> reassuring. That's a great start. That's right. Although, to be fair, the people around uh, in the report that you, you've read, the, the police people around him, they were sort of trying to make problems for me. And they, they were really, I could see that they wanted to make issues for me. But okay. he told them, you know, back off. I'm the immigration officer. He's my responsibility, not yours. So he kind of protected me in a way, uh, which was interesting. Was he part of the army or police? Uh, he's part of something called the DGM, DGM, which is the um, immigration office. It's the immigration department. So mm -hmm. they have this um, um, government branch in the Congo, and it's almost everywhere. It's the DGM, and they're immigration guys, and you find them at every, uh, in it, almost everywhere, not just in uh, border towns, but also in bigger cities. And unfortunately, he was like the only really nice DGM agent that I met. Most of them, <laughs> people like, where are you going? Give me money. You know, most of them are very corrupt and they, they just hassle uh, even the Congolese that are traveling through. But he, he was an exception. He was very nice. Okay. And then you're making your way to Kinshasa. That's right. Made my way to Kinshasa on the potentially the only good road of the country. And even then a truck, uh, had uh, fallen and cement bags were blocking the road and it was still uh, I was thinking wow this is the only like nice paved road uh, that I <laughs> and you know it still took two, th three hours to clear it and a lot of delays but um, I mean just to give you an example of how corrupt it is unfortunately yeah. um, when I got before Kinshasa to a town called Kisantu and I, like I said people can follow uh, with the map it's easier to, to see the journey the DGM, the immigration guy in that town told me, oh, you know, you should have given us money for the stamp that you got in your passport. And I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's the yeah. first place in my whole life where <laughs> somebody's asking you to pay them for getting your passport stamped. And that just shows you how unfortunately corruption is such um, an ingrained part of the lifestyle um, 
in that society, unfortunately, uh, which is totally different from, let's say, Angola, where I was coming from, where I never had anybody asking me for um, for cash for a passport stamp. So, yeah, I got to Kinshasa, the big city, and it was great. Uh, it's quite chaotic. It's a massive um, metropolis. And uh, from there, I carried on. Yeah, just to touch on the corruption bit very, very quickly. Why is that just desperation for money? Or is that maybe more of a, I don't know how to put this, like, it's what they think they should do? Like, regardless of like corruption, it's like, oh, here's a, here's a foreigner or even a Congolese. I need some money. I'm just going to do that. It's very interesting yeah. that maybe other countries don't have that quite intense um, mentality of like asking you for money, like for trivial things like a stamp. So I heard and I read that it's, I don't know if that's actually um, accurate, but I, I'd read that it was in the 90s, in the, the 1980s, when Mobutu was the dictator mm -hmm. of the country, um, the economy was collapsing and falling apart. And he just started telling civil servants and people, well, you know, just help yourself, find ways to survive. Uh, so at the time in the 80s, that's when corruption became massively endemic and it became a way of life. Yeah, uh, because the economy was falling apart at, at that time, and he, you know, when the leader himself is like, you know, just help yourself, sort of thing, you know, it's it's pretty bad. So people started to um, get used to having to pay bribes and uh, asking for bribes at that time, and it's kind of stuck in the culture ever since. Because mm -hmm. in terms of poverty, I don't think there, you know, in Angola, there are, there's also poverty in other areas of the yeah. world, even not just in Africa, but also in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, but to compare it with its neighbors in Angola, there, you know, I went to places in Angola that are equally as poor as, as some of the, the areas I saw in the Congo, but they don't do that. The, the police there never ask me for anything. So I think it's become cultural and it's just expected and everybody expects it and it's, it's become the norm. Uh, and mm. until they, I'm not sure how, how it's going to go away, but I, yeah, for some reason it's just become accepted uh, as if it's, it's something normal for everybody. Yeah, that's a shame. I, I wonder how they get out of that uh, mentality. That could take generations. Yeah, that's a obviously bigger discussion. Uh, yeah, like, I think I think what would what would be needed is that because um, I know in Burundi nearby, I was seeing some posters, you know, anti-corruption posters, and I think there, if somebody asks for a bribe you can report him to a special organization of the government branch of the government mm -hmm. and like they they really try to stamp it out by um cracking down on it and maybe eventually that's what the, what's going to be needed they're going to have to um make examples okay this guy asked for money he was fired from his job and it becomes a public example and, yes. and people will be more scared something like that will need to happen yeah accountability absolutely okay, okay. so you're you're making a way to Bandu-Duville. That's, <laughs> right. that right. That's right. Yeah, nice yeah. pronunciation. Via yeah. Mongata. So you, you obviously hitchhiking here. Um, any different tactic here? Or are you still sort of motorbikes and lorry drivers? Is that your main tactic? Right. So, so from Kinshasa to Mongata, I was able to do it with bikes and lorry drivers because the road was still paved and good. Uh, it's still in the Savannah area. Mm-hmm. And then once I got to Mangata, it became a, a kind of a sandy track, big, still big enough for lorries, but there were not any lorries that I could see at the time. And that's where it became a bit weird because I started talking to some 
villagers and they basically told me, oh, you should really be careful because um, 70k north or 80k north around the area of Mashambio and northward, there's an ethnic um, clash going on. There's an eth there's a tribal warfare happening. You know, you know, watch out and just be alert. And I was mm -hmm. like, mm, okay. And, and that explains why there was no bus coming through that road or no, <laughs> I could hardly see any traffic. I did see a, a little bit of traffic, but really not much. So I just kind of walked and could occasionally a bike would come and I would hop on the bike and it was just really, really hard to, to move. There was really no traffic. And I later learned that the government had suspended all, um, like bus um, transport on that road a few days before. Um, in fact, somebody had warned me to, he told me like this area, the Kwamuth territory is, um, is going through some troubles. Or, but when I Googled it on Google Maps and I typed Kwamuth, K-W-A-M-O-U-T-H, yeah. I saw a town, I saw only a town which was not on the way I was going to go. So I thought, what is he talking about? This is just a town. I didn't realize he was talking about the Kwamuth province or the Kwamuth district, which encompasses the road I was going to take. So I had misunderstood him. And I thought he was, I thought the conflict was only in a specific town, Kwamuth uh, city, right. and it was on the whole district. So get bikes here and there. And I managed to get north and north. And it's really hard to to move and get more get transport but i managed to walk sometimes i walk a lot and then i get on a bike and i walk a lot anyways got to mashambio and from mashambio i wake up the next day and i realize oh okay things are pretty wild here i see some local red cross workers and i can yeah. see that clearly i'm in a crisis area and i'm like okay and you know what what am i going to do at this point because i need to carry on north uh, and uh, I asked some people that were on foot coming from the other area and they tell me, I asked them like, do you think it's going to be okay? Cause people are warning me and I go and, I, and they're like, well, you know, it is a tribal war zone and people are being killed and massacred if they're not part of the right ethnicity. But truth be told, you're a white guy. You're not from here. You're not related to the conflict. I think you'll be okay. And this guy is a <laughs> refugee leaving the war zone. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> one of those yeah, it's, it's, you can imagine what I'm feeling. Just put yourself, pause and think how I'm feeling. I'm this lonely backpacker guy with a backpack, 23 years old at the time. And I'm in the middle of the Congo. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Do I take the chance and go? And to be fair, he was the first one that was reassuring me. Everybody, everybody yeah. else was trying to tell me, like, you know, you shouldn't go. But they were not thinking rationally. They were just thinking emotionally. And he was the first one. And he was coming from that area. So I put more weight into what he was saying. And he, he was like, no, I think you'll be okay. And he was very confident when he said that. So I said, okay. I, I, his, he seems to know what he's talking about. He's coming from the area. All the other people, I know they care about me and they're worried, but they're not coming from there directly. They don't know exactly what's going on. So I thought, let's just carry on a bit north on foot and let's, let's feel it. You know, I'll, I'll meet more people along the way and I'll, I'll get more of a feel. So I walked five kilometers north of Mashambio and there's uh, just no traffic nothing's coming so i just stop at this village and i saw villagers become friendly with me we talk and we chat they give me some mangoes from the trees and everything's great and then yeah. we have dinner together and at some point i realized because I, I bring up the topic i'm like well what's the big deal here what's happening and then i realized, oh one of the guys <laughs> he was like part of a raiding party that had killed people um i think the 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 like the day before they'd killed like yeah. four people 
the day before. So he was part of of that uh, of that um, tribal warfare. So it was both scary and terrifying, but at the same time super reassuring because I'm like, well, he clearly doesn't have a problem with me because we're just, we're having dinner together right now, and he's yeah, treating he me like he was, see. Yeah, that's right. And he's not. So I'm like, well, clearly they don't have a problem with me being there at all. And that's that's good. And um, and I, I asked him, I said, well, do you think I can carry on north to Bondadouville? Do you think uh, it's going to be OK with uh, with your militia friends? <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, you, you'll probably be OK because we don't really have any problems with you. We're you're we're after. So the name of the tribes, there's the Tak, the Yeke, sorry, Yaka and Teke. Yeah. And. The Teke were killing the Yakas on the northern half of the territory, and I was still in the southern half. So I was talking to uh, Yakas, and the Yakas were killing the Tekes in the area I was in. So they were both killing each other, but they had different con- they had control over different areas, and they were um, asking you know people's IDs, and they can tell your ethnicity from your name and your last name and things like that. So. They said, "You're not a Teke. We don't have a problem with you. You'll probably be, f- be fine. You're not you're not the enemy. You're not the target." So um, the next uh, day walked again and it was just hard. And eventually I saw a truck and I, I, he wouldn't stop. I had to kind of run, but luckily the track is so terrible that the truck was going slowly <laughs> and couldn't go fast enough. So, and I'm a pretty good runner. And yeah. the girlfriend of the driver had pity on me and she told him to stop and let me, in exchange for a bit of money, I could hop on the top of the, the truck, like the very, very top. And then eventually, you know, long story short, we, the, the, the most scary moment of my life came, which is that we got to um, a checkpoint, a full genocidal checkpoint with guys that had paint on their face. And I later learned it's a mix of magical potions and blood of the victims that they put on their oh, face. Crikey. And they had machetes. They had some hunting rifle. They didn't have like heavy machine gun, but they had like a, a normal sort of uh, hunting rifle. Mm-hmm. Like the, their guns were not really that threatening. They had really bad guns, but they had machetes and uh, a few a few hunting rifles. And there was a lot of them. I don't know, maybe 15, 20 guys. And I could see, oh, they're intoxicated. Like they're not sober. Yeah. It was 2 p.m. And I could see in their eyes that they were intoxicated. So I, I was really scared at this point, but I'm on top of the truck. And I thought, just stay calm. Even if inside you're terrorized, on the outside, try to try to look calm, try to look like you're in control of the situation and look relaxed. Because I learned on the road in previous countries, it's always good to look on the outside like you know what you're doing and you're, you're calm. You know, yeah. people respect that. So we get to the checkpoint. And the guys ask, you know, money to the driver for some bullets to buy. And um, and then they see me and I see that they're sort of, I, I, they were definitely drunk and maybe had smoked some stuff. And they're like, hey, uh, Mundele. Mundele means uh, white. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, like white guy. And they're, they're like, they almost find it funny that I'm there on top of the truck. They were not expecting this guy. Yeah. Like this white backpacker to come in the middle. <laughs> I mean, it's an area that no tourists go there in the first place, but especially not in, in a time of tribal warfare. So they're just not expecting me. And that's also good because they don't know who I am. I could be a UN inspector. I could be somebody mm-hmm. with contacts that's very powerful. They have no idea. And I just look normal. I stay on top of the truck. And one of them says, hey, like, can, you have some money for us. And I just look very calm and polite. And I replied that I um, I just kind of pretend that I didn't hear him. Like I, like if I, I didn't hear him. And then mm-hmm. he asks people on top of the truck to come down to check their identity and the driver has to get out and he's checking everybody luckily except me because i clearly don't look like a tech here yeah. so he knows i'm not uh, a target 
And as he's checking other people, I luck gaze with another rebel who looks sober and he's like the least intoxicated of the bunch. And we both look at each other and I just try to, it's hard to put into words, but you know, you just look at somebody in the eyes and there's a communication that's nonverbal. Yeah. And he gestures at me and I gesture at him and we just stare at each other. And it basically meant something like what he, he basically looked at me as in like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. I'm going to take care of the situation. We're not after you. And he even takes his hand out and gives me the gesture, you know, the gesture of like, relax, uh, the yeah. palm down, sort of waving the yeah. palm down, like you're going to be fine. So I'm like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and eventually, and then I'm like, is it over? No, it's not over. The rebels come on the truck with their equipment and with their weapons to hitch a lift to their next checkpoint. So all these genocidal <laughs> rebels literally get on top of the truck and, you know, it's like, okay, you want some space? Have some space. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight with you over the track. And they just come and they, they drive, uh, I mean, the driver drives them to uh, their other checkpoint a few kilometers away. And then we get to a town called Bethany, which is about, it's like the, um, it was like the border area between the Teke and the Yaka. Yeah. And there are some army guys. And then after that, because it was nearer, it was nearer to Bandudu, the northern half of the road was uh, safer. There were no checkpoints because the army had a bit more muscle and they could um, mm -hmm. enforce things. So we didn't see any checkpoints on the nor northern half, but it was still pretty uh, hair-raising, to say the least. It's interesting because I, when I was reading your report, one of my first questions I had is, is it definitely uh, an advantage speaking French? Like if I was there and I'd, I speak no French, would that have been more difficult? Great question. I think... I've asked myself that too. Yeah. Are you talking specifically about the Congo in general or that specific uh, stretch of the, the trip? Uh, no, no, in general, in the Congo, because you could probably have conversations with anyone because they probably yeah, speak I French. Think it, yeah, I think, I think it is an asset. I think it's an asset because I could get information, uh, for example, that refugee uh, on foot who gave me the confidence to carry on. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't speak any English. And if I had, not spoken French, I would have missed out on that. And then maybe I would have worried more once I'd gotten to the checkpoints. Uh, so I think, I think, yes, definitely knowing French gave me the ability to get accurate information and understand the situation much better. Mm -hmm. So yes, the only thing is if you don't speak French, I think you can save time with the authorities because I kind of skipped that, but on the whole way to even get to Bandudu, you know, you meet, uh, corrupt police officers who ask you for cash and blah, blah, blah. And if you don't speak French, I think it's easier to play dumb and just pretend that you don't understand until they get right. bored and they let you go. So yeah. uh, that the only advantage of not speaking French is that I believe you might avoid some uh, arguments with the authorities and you might uh, they might just get tired of you more quickly and let you go. But yeah. besides that, absolutely, it is useful and um, it's an asset for sure. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. And at this point on this journey, are you anywhere near sort of the jungle area or the rainforest area at all? I was not. Yeah, it was still Savannah. Um, yeah. Still Savannah area. Um, and just briefly, so for the people that are listening that are thinking, you know, why on earth would you take that road if people are telling you that there's, you know, warfare and stuff? The thing is, it was pretty much the only road that was going to go where I wanted to reach, which is Bandeduville and then Lake Mayanombe a little bit further, further north. So you know, that conflict could last for weeks. I didn't know how long it was going to last. So I, I didn't want to take a plane. And 
there was I could have gone by river, but they also told me that by river, uh, people on ships would stop boats and kill people huh. on the boats and throw them in the river. So even by river, it was uh, it would have been a problem. <laughs> so, so there was it was either I'm doing it or not. And you know, Tim Butcher has this thing where he divides risk into objective risk and subjective risk. Mm-hmm. So subjective is things you have control over, and then objective is just accepting that there's a level of risk that you that doesn't come from you and you can't control. So my subjective risk was, okay, what do I control? I'm going to stay as calm as I can when I see them. I'm going to be as relaxed. I'm not going to show any fear or anything. I'm going to stay on top of the truck. And, you know, I had a bit of protection being on top of this very, very big truck on the roof of it. You know, I'm not an easy target uh, necessarily. Like if they, if I were on foot, you know, you're already a bit more exposed, but you're on top of the truck. So they already have to think twice. Um, If they want to get to you, they're going to have to either climb the truck. It just adds a level of, um, psychological protection, I suppose. And I, I crossed in the middle of the day, you know, 2 p.m. So if I'd done that at night where people are even more uh, unpredictable at night, sometimes yeah. people feel like um, they can do crazier things at night because nobody sees them. But, you know, middle of the day, 2 p.m., I was trying my best to um, have the right circumstances. But, yeah, you have to accept the level of objective risk and and roll the dice and um i was i was ready but i remember thinking on top of that truck okay this is past my limit you know this is just hmm. too nerve-wracking um I, I i went too far sort of thing i, I remember thinking to myself you know this is a oh. level of risk that you should not take again um it was just too too stressful ah oh, very interesting lucky that sober guy who sort of gave you that reassuring nod if yeah. he wasn't there yeah I don't know if that would have escalated or not. Well, but... if he wasn't there, I, I, I don't think they would have killed me. My, like, mm. I'm 99% sure it wasn't a matter of getting killed. I, I was not going to get killed there on that day. What would have maybe happened is that um, they, you know, the money thing, I would have had yes. to give them money. That that would have been the problem. But I, but that I was, you know, it was a cycle. I was prepared for that. Mm-hmm. But my concern was I don't want to get killed. And I don't think objectively that was a, a real risk. These people... Why would they kill a random? They don't kill the Congolese that are not uh, Teke. Why would they kill a Canadian guy that's traveling through? Like it makes zero sense. Yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, and you make your way to Bandudouville uh, by boat. That's uh, right. Uh, what what was that like? Uh, yeah. Well, I it... Yeah. So Bandudouville was. Uh, it was good to finally be there, and you know, I could relax a little bit after the harrowing journey. Uh, even just to get there, you have to cross the Quilu River. And, you know, before getting there, I was harassed again by the authorities who want to, you know, they're just there to get money and they just harass you. And if you don't comply, they get angry and they shout and then you have to shout back. And it, it was annoying. I was telling them, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a stressful situation of a, a, a literal genocidal war zone. And you guys have zero empathy and zero sympathy. And you're harassing me for cash, even though I went through an area that you probably wouldn't even feel comfortable going through. Mm. Like, can't you guys have a bit of sympathy for me here? <laughs> like, I was just trying to, I was trying to reason with them. Like, don't you understand what I've been through? Yeah. And, and yeah, I, um, I think they were also suspicious of like, why are you coming from this area that we know is uh, rowdy and dangerous? You know, are you a mercenary? Like, it was making me even more suspicious in their eyes because they mm-hmm. couldn't believe I'd made it out of their lives. So they were probably, you know, twice as suspicious. So a lot of argument back and forth but i got to go to the uh, catholic mission there and i was 
kindly hosted by Father Franek, who is a Polish missionary who's been living in the DRC since 2002, I believe. So oh, wow. he was there and he was really nice and he had a really nice uh, mission with uh, good bed, good food and Wi-Fi. And it was just like a home away from home. It was mm. it was great to be with him. He speaks fluent French and it was great to be with him, you know, to, to be um, with a, a person from a similar culture who you can have... Um, conversations with and um who can understand what you've been through and i can understand you know it was just great so i got to rest with him a little bit and this part of the trip kind of changes right because now the track goes to quite a small track in terms of size because any bikes can really navigate here so what i started yeah, to realize from now on is right. that you're paying you're paying some money now for bikes to get you from one place to another um, right, what was the exchange right. rate area, for their current uh, local uh, money to dollar? Two thousand francs was one US dollar. So uh, okay. for one dollar, it's two thousand. So twenty thousand, ten bucks, two hundred thousand, hundred bucks. So that's good to know in case we, you know, talk about any bribes or any um, yeah. people need to pay to go across. And you're making your way to Kiri. That's and... right. So, so that in itself was interesting. So got some bikes, then got to a town called Nyoki. Yeah, um, and then in Yoki, I was uh, hosted again. The cool thing that I liked in, is that it, once you're away from the major cities like Kinshasa, for example, or Kisangani, which we'll get to later on, if you're out of those big cities, the Catholic missions are are very relaxed and open and not used to seeing foreigners. And if you politely ask and you tell them you've got a sleeping bag and you're just a backpacker who's looking mm -hmm. for you know, a place to crash at either very low cost or even maybe free if they have a spare uh, space. They're very accommodating because they, they these missions were built by um, European missionaries in the 19th and 20th, mostly 20th century. And they're very big, a lot of rooms, a lot of beds, a lot of that is empty and people don't use it. So they have a lot of space. And the guys who run the missions, the Congolese priests and the clergy, they're very educated. Um, very intellectual, and they're kind of happy to to see foreign travelers. You know, um, yeah. they they don't they don't think you're a spy or something like this because they're they many of them have uh, studied abroad or have lived abroad in Belgium or France or have gone to the Vatican already. Yeah. So it's a good place if anybody is listening and you you find yourself in a Congolese city that's not a big major city. The Catholic mission is a good place to find some rest. Uh, they you know, you, you can pitch up somewhere. So I got to stay with them a little bit. And uh, then I had to ask around. And that's where French is very useful because, you know, you go to the port and you ask, I want to go to Kiri. How do I get there? Mm -hmm. And then you have to ask around and they they try to tell you the information. And nobody knows when the boats are going to come. So they call this finding an opportunity. Uh, <laughs> that's they, they say, I'm seeking for an opportunity. That's the word they use in, in, in Congo. <laughs> So when is the next opportunity for Kiri? When is the next opportunity for this? And yeah. well, there's a boat tomorrow that should come and go to Inongo. Inongo, if people can see on the map, it's on Lake Mayandombe, uh, and it's about halfway to Kiri. So you have to go there first before you can go to Kiri. So the next day I show up to the port, there is, and I buy my ticket, which was, I think, 20,000 francs, which is 10 US dollars. Mm -hmm. And I 
get on the boat, but there's no real departure time. Nobody knows. Like it's supposed to leave at 10 a.m. <laughs> and end up leaving at like 3 p.m. So, you know, just relax, sit back. But people were very nice because they, they don't see, you know, white tourists going in that area. So yeah. when they saw me, they're like, oh, yeah, we're happy to have you along. You know, go on the top floor. Here's some space. Here's uh, where you can lay down. I just took out my ebook and read on my Kindle tablet and it was great. We were going along on the, on the lake and I thought of Joseph Conrad. Do you know the novel Heart of Darkness? I do not, no. So it's this famous uh, novel by this Polish um, skipper who traveled up the Congo River in the 19th century and he wrote this novel that became quite famous. A lot of people um, know about the Congo because of, of him and I was, you know, I wasn't on the Congo River, but I was still in the Congo on a, on a lake in a, yeah. in a river area. And I was thinking, wow, this is, this is, uh, you know, pure adventure going up with the, 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 uh, the boat, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> the, the, an old diesel engine. And so you don't have a bed or anything, you just lay down and you, there was not that many people on the top floor, so I could just rest, but the thing that happened is in the middle of the night, we got shipwrecked on a, um, oh. on a sandbank uh, and it started raining cats and dogs at the same time. So we're, and then it became like a full on, almost like a cyclone, like super <laughs> windy tropical uh, storm. And we're, we're, we're shipwrecked there and you know, you're completely soaked. I mean, you're, it's, a, it's, people can see pictures of the, um, of the type of boats that they use in the Congo. If you type a uh, wooden boat Congo online, you'll find it. It's, these are very uh, basic boats, so there's no real place to hide. And you know, I was I went to the sort of bathroom, which is like a little door, and then you get in, and there's a hole in the middle of the floor, <laughs> and the ocean right underneath it. And I just got in there while it was raining to protect myself, and stood there for hours while the rain was going, you know, going on. And yeah, yeah, we were we were stuck there, and then the guys had to jump out, and the, ne the next day, and had to physically push. Crikey. Actually, it didn't work. They tried to push the boat out of the sandbank, couldn't do it. So we had to ask fishermen around, and then the fishermen unloaded our ship, and then it became lighter, and they managed to push it out. Anyways, it was a complete uh, adventure, and we got to Inongo, and then from Inongo, I got another, another boat that brought me to Kiri. And, um, you know, just to describe it to people, um, from the Inongo boat to Kiri, I mean, this is not your five-star cruise ship <laughs> in Miami. You know, this is this is you. You're sleeping on the top deck with hundreds of people. You have barely any space. You're packed like a sardine. There's somebody who's got their feet on my face, and I've got my feet on someone else's face, and you can hardly move. You know, you gotta. You can't even turn because there's just so many people. And if you need to go to the bathroom, there's one toilet, and. You have to walk over those bodies at night, so try to be near the the bathroom if you if you ever go in one of those boats. Because if you wake up at one a.m. and you have to walk over a hundred sleeping bodies to to get to the bathroom, it can be uh, challenging. And yeah, anyways, I got to Kiri, and that's where the jungle started. It's just yeah, that level of travel in terms of that boat, people will be like, wow, like the boats like from Suratani to Copenhagen, which are packed with backpackers nothing compared to the boat that you're on <laughs> um that is crazy and yeah I, I guess there's air conditioning on that boat you're talking about yeah yeah absolutely yeah just about 
That's crazy. And also, this is the start yeah. of the jungle as well. So, did you feel like, I wouldn't say the start, that the trip has started, but you've kind of entered like the, the proper phase of your trip because it's been overland for now and now you're going to go real into the jungle and tackle probably the most, right. like, not important, but, you know, the, the, the most the meaty ob- part, objective, yeah. yeah, the objective of your trip. Yeah, so it was a mix of excitement. Excitement. I was excited because, like, oh yeah, here's the jungle. You know, when was when was the seminar going to end? So I was partly excited and thrilled. Yeah, but also a bit scared because you know that from now on, you know, it's gonna there's gonna be even less infrastructure, less internet connection, less uh, cell phones. So once I left Inongo, uh, the the signal was gone. Um, right. No phone signal and. Uh, no, no ways to contact anybody, which is good. And I, I, like we talked about when we talked about Sudan and the internet blackout, I like when I'm on, on a trip. I like this. Um, I, I like sometimes being disconnected and just reading books that you have and not being in touch with the yeah. outside world. You can be fully, mm-hmm. fo- fully focused. Mm-hmm. But there's also a bit of fear that comes in because you're like, okay, what if I lose my money? Now I have nobody to contact. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to answer your question, I was excited because I knew that all those challenges I'd, I'd gone through—the tribal warfare and the boat shipwreck and the storm and the corruption—all of that was just the appetizer before the main course, which would be the um, the jungle. So I was quite happy. And how did you plan where to go in the jungle? Were you going from one settlement to another, or right. just following a river, or what was your thinking there? Well, th- that's a great question. So once I got to Kiri, I was like, I know I want to get to Kisangani, which is, I don't know, 2,000 kilometers away <laughs> uh, east. I, and I, I knew um, that from talking to people, like, the, the, you know, people do have um, sort of uh, footpath, footpaths that bikes can occasionally use. And, you mm-hmm. know, I knew that they were blood vessels, so to speak. Like, they're not roads, but they're... they're trails that you can use to um to get from point a to point b so i knew okay whatever happens even if i don't find a bike i can walk like uh, the universe has given me feet i can use my legs and i can walk if i walk five kilometers uh, per hour that's still you know i can do you know 25 30k per per day or more so i Mm -hmm. i was confident that no matter what if there's a trail i can move that's good and finding maps was difficult to find accurate maps of the jungle, but when okay. I was in Bandoduville at Father for next mission, I found a great map of the of the Congo interior of the jungle that had uh, names of settlements on it, rivers, and showed some of the um, paths in the jungle. Yeah. So I'd taken pictures of that um, of that map, and I wasn't really sure where I was going to go after Kiri, but I knew it was going to be the starting point. Once I got to Kiri, I went. To Penjua, a little bit north, with a local, yeah. And there, all I said was, I, I, I'd like to see Salonga National Park, that's for farther east. Uh, which direction should I t- take to go there? Like, where exactly uh, is it? Because th- I didn't even know how to get to Salonga National Park, because that's how little good information there is. Yeah. And they said, well, the best way you could do it is if you go east. So just people see. Kiri and then Penjua. I, I don't think Penjua is on Google Maps, but it's a bit north of Kiri. Uh, of Kiri, mm-hmm. and people said if you if you manage to get to the Momboyo River, which is where the ta- the settlement of Bo- Boyera is, 
Yeah. You know, just go east sort of thing. But they didn't know themselves because they'd never been to the Salangan National Park. They just said you kind of have to go east. So huh. this is where you really feel like an explorer, James, because you're yeah. like, I've Old got school. no idea where I'm supposed to go. I've got, I've got no idea which what's the best optimal route. And people are telling me about a route that I didn't even know existed because I didn't even know there was a route between. Uh, it's like it's like you need your compass and, and they said, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." I mean, it's. I mean, luckily the trail is big enough that you. But it's like, yeah, like how am I going to get there? So they said, "Look, unfortunately, bikes can't even go on mm-hmm. that trail because it's not passable." And at the time, I was like, "What are they talking about? It's not passable." And they said, "Oh, yeah, because it's full of swamps and." It's uh, it's it's so bad that even us who are hardy jungle um, uh, countrymen, we can't y- use our bikes to go through. So you only you can only go by foot. And the only problem is the end point is ninety kilometers away. So you'll have to walk ninety kilometers. So I thought, okay, it's a challenge. Let's do it. Just to find the entrance of the trail, James, I had to ask <laughs> villagers, can you guys show me where is the entrance of the trail? Because I don't even know where is this trail you guys are talking about. So they just yeah. took me the forest and then showed me a little clearing that you couldn't even guess it was a trail, but they showed me it was a trail. I'm like, okay, that's the place. So I, I waved them goodbye and I really felt like, you know, this is it. This is, we've all seen these movies when, when we were younger, <laughs> like Elbow Baggins, you know, the, the Hobbit, when he goes in it. We, we grew up with all these adventures and these odysseys and Lord of the Rings and all these, we, we consume media that talks about adventures, but we hardly do these adventures in our own lives. Yep. But I can tell you, when I was setting out on foot, leaving Penjwa and going to Boyera with my backpack, knowing I would have to walk almost 100 Ks with no idea what was going to happen, that it, you, you feel like an adventurer at that time. Mm. And this is when this part of the story is quite interesting because you are going to have to walk either barefoot or in your trainers or sneakers. And That's right. what you're exposed to here is wildlife, could be snakes, worms, parasites, all the mosquitoes. Like, there's a plethora of things here that you're going to be exposed to. Like, how did you get over that? I, I mean, frankly, I first I didn't, even, I hadn't even realized how bad the swamps would be because right. they laughed at me. And they said, like, are you going to go with Snickers? I'm like, yeah, of course. You hike with Snickers. That's the normal way to do it in our in our countries, right? Yeah, but. And I was like, "How could I not use my sneakers?" But then I realized why they were. They wanted. Uh, how do you call those um, sandals or not sandals? You know those things you use at the beach. Um, flip flops. Flip flops. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I realized, geez, I should have had flip flops because <laughs> it would have been better. So I had to. I tried a bit of both. First, I would go barefoot and tie my shoes around my backpack. Yeah. So I had to carry my shoes on me. But yeah, then, I mean, you're walking in the in the mud and in the water, but you're also injuring yourself because there are little sticks here and there and, and things that are sharp. So I thought, <sighs> okay, that's bad. So I, I preferred to then, sometimes I would switch. I would put my sneakers on and then just yeah. completely soak them. And just to be clear, I'm a pretty tall guy, like six foot four, and I had water sometimes up to my ankle, uh, not my ankle, sorry, my uh, thigh, and um, almost to my waist. So I was actually scared from my phone. I had to put my phone in my uh, upper body jacket yeah. in my, in, to make sure it wouldn't get soaked by water. So, and I, and I was scared of losing my documents in the water because I was walking with water up to my, um, yeah, my waist, I guess you call it, the hips, yeah. up, up the hips. Yeah, and your money. So, come again? And your money as well, your $2,000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, exactly, the $2,000 on top. And I had to put, it was all in the bag. And, you know, 
I was like, oh, don't lose this back because if you lose it, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of, and let's be honest, once you've got water up to your hips, it's almost swimming at this point. So, yeah. you know, it was almost like, I never used my hands, thankfully, but it could, it's walking slash almost swimming. But uh, sometimes it would get dry and then you're happy, but after a few kilometers, it turns into a swamp again. It was just, and I would see these villagers that were so brave, you know, going with bicycles and then they would carry their bikes on their uh, they're so strong, like it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. They would lift their bikes and walk with the bikes over the swamps and then, you know, back on land and cycle and back on in the river. And I was astonished at what they were doing because I didn't even have a bike. I just had my own backpack and I was, I was feeling terrible. Like, Oh, this is hard. This is tough. I'm scared of falling in and losing my money. I'm scared of mm-hmm. breaking my ankle. And these guys are living there 24 7 this is their yeah. home i can go back to canada at any moment call it a quit yeah. and go home and have my nice comfort back home they can't they have to deal with this and this is their you know permanent lifestyle so i have mass massive respect for these people in fact they helped me um at some point some of those locals saw me and they were of course very intrigued you know what is this yeah. white man doing here in this area so they offered to um helped me one of them uh put my bag on his bike and yeah it's incredible to think back at, at this generous man that i'll never meet again like he yeah he helped me out and then he would let me even ride with him a little bit although there's only one seat so you have to sit on the um the place where you put like baggage on the bicycle so it's yeah. pretty comfortable but it's still better than walking and he ended up inviting me to his home for the night and i give him of course uh money as, as um to thank him for his help like he didn't ask mm-hmm. for anything but i give him something of course as a gift and yeah it was it was great to um yeah he actually uh killed a chicken as a welcoming uh, gesture when i oh. when i got there yeah but it was it was tough like those three days of overlanding through this trail from penjwa to boyera you wake up at dawn because you can't even walk fast enough because you're blocked by the swamp so instead of yeah. walking at five k an hour you're walking at two to three k's an hour because it's you're you're, sl- you're slowed down by the physical obstacles so you walk from dawn to dusk and you're just you collapse once you get to the end of your day and you get to a settlement you you i've never slept that well you, you get there you don't even want to eat i was so exhausted after 12 hours of walking and carrying yeah. my bag where's the bed he gives me a bed i would fall asleep before dinner came like i would literally collapse and, and he'd have to wake me up hey hey there's some food ready huh what and I had fallen asleep. That's how exhausting uh, it is. So if you, if any of your listeners are listening to this, if you if you go through that area, be ready because it's it's really tough. And also, you saw some pygmies. That's right. Yeah. So I would see some uh, people on the. It's it, it was magical because you're walking, and yes, sometimes there are swamps, but other times it's it's more dry, and you can walk normally, and you see butterflies around you, and then at, around a corner whoops, you see a guy with a bow and arrow that's going in to hunt for the day. <laughs> and and it's it's really out of this world. And it's just so quiet and serene because there's no sound, no cars, nothing around you. You're deep in the jungle of the Congo. You see this guy that's going to hunt mm-hmm. and he's a bit scared of you because you're the first white person he's ever seen. And, you know, people were kind of scared when they saw me because most of them had never seen a foreigner. Yeah, yeah, they, absolutely. Yeah. They, 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 sometimes they would actually run away. Like I would see people and they would turn back and run uh, or, or like they would pass me and then run. They were very afraid. It felt very 
very strange and very unique. It's I. This is going to sound a bit maybe arrogant or um, uh, prideful, but I think I got a glimpse of what of some of the early explorers must have felt when they got to you know some uh, areas. Some like think of um, Magellan or some of these early explorers who got to lands where they'd never seen outsiders. Yeah. Uh, even though there have been outsiders who've been there before, especially during the Belgian time, a lot of the young people in the in the interior where I was yeah. going through, mm -hmm. they, they'd never seen outsiders. And so I was the first one that they were seeing. And I got to experience what it's like when you're the first outsider that somebody sees. And it's very unique. Um, they, 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 I think they thought I was a demon, some of them. Like they, oh, wow. They would scream. Like they would see me and they would... Like I would talk to them, hey, bonjour, hello, and they would look at me absolutely terrified, as if you just saw a mountain lion in your courtyard. Like huh. it was very bizarre, very strange. I don't have words to describe it. You have to live it to know that. If you were to go with me now and you you went through these areas, you'd be shocked. Um, sometimes I would wave at them, and then they they would wave back. But if I got closer, they would step back. You know, like they really okay. thought I was a spirit or something. And they would run away. If I got too close, they would just run away. I think there's nowhere really you can say in the world where you get that. There can't be too many places left because, yeah. of, globali so, because of globalization, right? That's right. So I think it's, it's, it's harder and harder and harder. Um, and so, for example, I would get to a village where the elders would have seen white people. Yeah. But the people that were below, like, what they basically told me is that... Um, People of sometimes the occasional white person will show maybe like a anti Ebola NGO or something. Yeah, will will show up in either Boyera on the river like ev once every ten years. You know, it's it's very rare, but maybe mm -hmm. once every ten years, somebody f who's part of an NGO to um, warn people about Ebola will show up at Boyera and at Penjwa. So between the two, and so at the endpoints of the trail on the north side and on the south side, but between those two. The guy said nobody nobody comes inside because it's so annoying just to yeah, walk yeah. it yeah. that nobody wants to bother. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of privileged, I suppose, because you're right. It's very hard nowadays on Earth to find areas where you'll meet people who've never seen outsiders. And yeah, uh, yeah I guess it's a very unique experience. I, I can't think of anywhere really. I mean, obviously, apart from where you've been. Um, so I think the Africa, I think Papua, I think, in, I think maybe in remote, remote parts of Papua, oh, yeah. uh, the island of Papua, I think you might be able to, to, to do that. Yeah. Um, maybe in some very, very remote, um, I mean, so communities who've had contact, I mean, a lot of communities have had contact with outsiders, but outsiders come every, every, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years. And so, for example, the children, you, you might be the first outsider that the children see. But yeah, the, yes. the elders will have seen people, but the kids, you'll be the first. In fact, I would ask them sometimes. I'd be like, hey, why, why is there 200 people that are gathering to come and see me? Yeah. And they said, well, a lot of those people are young and they've never been to Kinshasa or they've never been to the larger cities in the Congo. So for them, you are the first person that they see. Wow. And, um, in real life, some of them had, for example, sat they, they've seen uh, outsiders on satellite television, okay, uh, yeah. like football, for example, yeah, yeah, but they still haven't seen one in real life, so they're like, Oh, I'm curious to. Uh, and it's funny because I would come at night to rest, and the the guy told me, People, the, the word is spreading that you're here, 
and people <laughs> from neighboring settlements are coming all the way just to see you like you're an attraction for them you're you're a sight to behold so they would spread the word hey this foreigner is there and then people would walk a few kilometers just to come and, and see what i looked like so it was quite surreal i felt like i was in a zoo i felt like i was an animal that's crazy because I'm, I'm reading a book at the minute from an author called william thysiger and he wrote a book about the marsh arabs in southern iraq and he mm -hmm. said the same thing he would arrive at a village and were to go around to like you know village next door a village a bit further on and they all come to see him and that was in the 50s <laughs> that's crazy yeah it is it is quite interesting i'm I, in a way i'm lucky I'm, I'm experiencing what travelers were experiencing a few decades ago which is hard to experience now like you said but i'm, I'm getting a glimpse of what it was to travel in the 50s yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you make your way to Monconto and the Salonga National Park, and you maybe an aim right. to see the bonobos. Right. So once I got to Boyera, I'm on the river. But but just to give an idea to the listeners, Boyera is a tiny settlement of a few hundreds, you know, a few hundred people. I don't know, maybe max eight hundred mm -hmm. people live there. I'm not sure, but it's it's really small. You know, a few wooden shops that sell some goods that come by the river river Momboyo, you know a bit of car sardines and maybe a bit of bread and but very very little like almost nothing they just have a few um wooden houses and it's it's tiny 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 so i show up there and the police commander you know uh, he talks to me he's curious you know who's this guy coming out of the jungle we've never seen somebody come out of the jungle on foot you know i sometimes forgot how because I was so focused on my purpose, James, and on my journey that I forgot yeah. how unusual I could be for them. And so I would just get out of the woods as if it's the most normal thing. And for him, it's like I've been working here for 15 years. I've never seen somebody come out of the woods <laughs> that has a big safari hat and a backpack. So I looked like a, an anim a strange animal to him. So we get, to, we get to talking. And again, that's why French is useful. I get to speak to him and, and we converse and we, we get along well. We become uh, friendly with one another, another. and uh, yeah, he invited me to his uh, house with his lovely wife that cooked dinner. And so he had, because he was in a position of authority as a police commander, he had a bit of education and he had um, lived in the larger cities in the Congo. Mm -hmm. So he had already seen foreigners and he was a bit, you know, he was, how could I put it? It, it he was um, comfortable with my presence because he told okay. me that his police officers that were in that settlement, they'd never seen a, an outsider, and he told yeah. me they were scared of me. Like initially, oh, wow. he wanted me, yeah, he wanted me to sleep in a in a cabin, and then he came to fetch me and he said, "You're gonna have to come home because the people around are scared of you." Like huh. that's that's how it's hard to put into words, and it's really hard for people to understand. Like if anybody experiences this one day, they'll understand. But like. Police officers are scared of, and of course I say police officers, but it's not like in America where they have a badge and a uniform. Right. These guys, there's just the local villagers that have been designated to work for him as as cops, and you know they have no real like license or training or anything. They're they're just, um, you know, it's it's quite basic uh, social organization. So yeah, he brought me to his home. Great stuff. And and then the next day it's like, okay, how do I get there? There's no road anymore. There's no trail. There's this Mumbai River, and there's no bus I can take and no ferry. So how <laughs> how am I gonna move? You know, it's, yeah, it's a big challenge. 
got to, I, I spoke to some uh, people and the pastor of the village had a, a hollowed out tree trunk uh it's like a canoe yeah so i said can i give you some money and you can get me to the next settlement and so we negotiated we haggled and then the command he wanted a lot too much he wanted to take advantage of me but the commander spoke to him and said hey you know he, he stepped in so i really appreciate that and we got a good price and we went but again very surreal experience because you're on this tiny canoe and you it's moving a lot and you feel like it's gonna flip at any second and i've got my money on me and I'm, at, least, at least i had a, a sense of control when i was walking in the swamps because it was my body so i yeah. felt like i was in control yeah. right like, okay, you're moving left foot right foot you feel like you control things now phew, i don't control anything these guys are paddling there's one at the front and one at the back I and mean, then it's a very thin canoe so i had I actually decided to um lay down because i felt like if i was sitting I, the balance was too bad and i was gonna <laughs> capsize i thought i'm just gonna sit i'm gonna lay down in the canoe like a corpse yeah. to help them keep the balance because i really don't want to lose my passport and two thousand bucks in the water because at this point if it happens the trip's over yeah yeah and, yeah. and these guys i they, they, they paddled really well and they were really really brave and they just you know they do it um by standing they don't even sit they just stand and they both have a paddle and it's all man powered no machine nothing just man powered and they paddle mm -hmm. they paddle and i yeah i got to the settlement and wave them goodbye after paying them and that place of course was run by an aggressive alcoholic commander who was making issues for me and he was totally drunk and told very aggressive and it's it's kind of scary when you show up to a place that you don't know and some yeah, yeah. The big bosses. It was like a video game, you know, like this guy is like shouting at me with <laughs> his face red like a tomato and he's completely intoxicated. And again, you just take home and you observe, you read the situation. You, you, you want to look like you're in control. So you don't yes. show that you're afraid. You stay quiet. You stay calm. Even if you're terrified inside, on the outside, you must look like you, you're playing poker and mm -hmm. you know what's happening. And then the tribal chief heard the mayhem and he heard that there was a commotion. So he came to fetch me yeah. and he told me that this guy was appointed by the government and the, the locals hate him because he's a despot. But luckily, as the tribal chief, he has some power to protect the population and people help me out. And so the next day I got another fisherman to carry me further. And at some point while we are, you know, you can only do like 10 to 15 kilometers per day when you yeah. use these fishermen because it's mm -hmm. you, i was going um against the current up uh upstream yeah. so it's really slow so i was like oh i'm gonna have to take you know it's gonna take me at least 10 days or 15 days before i can get to Monkoto. it's gonna be hard but then at some point i hear the sound of an engine i'm like what what's going on and i turn my head and this motorized canoe which is pretty big it's coming towards us and I'm thinking, oh, it's probably an immigration officer who's going to come and hassle me and tell <laughs> me, well, he's going to make problems for me. What's, what's happening? And it turns out it's this priest who's traveling from the town of Mbandaka, which is uh, the fourth largest city in the Congo. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's going from there to his uh, p parish in Wafania, W-A-F-A-N-I-A. -A -A. Yeah. And he's traveling by motorized uh, canoe and He's he's heard about me in the settlement where I slept the the last night because the pastor who was hosting me when he 
went to shore to resupply his canoe, the pastor told him, hey, there's this white guy who's desperately <laughs> trying to move. And I feel bad for him. He has to use fishermen and pirogues. And he, he's going to take him forever to get to where he wants to go. If you've got a bit of space, can you help this poor guy? You know, we feel so bad for this guest and blah, blah, blah. And this guy came. And when he saw me on the river, he knew it was me. Because, you know, in the, in the middle of the Congo, there was not going to be that many foreign tourists. Yeah. So he knew it was me. Shows up, hop in. And I'm like, what? What a beautiful gift of, of the you know of the universe that this guy shows up. So I thank the fishermen, give them the money I promised, get into the motorized canoe, and and this priest is so nice and he speaks fluent French because the not everybody speaks French. Like the fishermen didn't really they understand some words but they don't really oh, okay. speak. Yeah. Um. So we ha- they they couldn't really speak. They sort of understand some words, but he spoke. He was really educated. Uh, the priest. So. I felt great, and he saved me. I don't know, maybe ten days of, of travel. Oh, wow! And, uh, yeah, and he got, brought me all the way to Wafania, and he was so happy because I think for him life is a bit boring too, you know. Because he told me about his story, and he is this priest who lives in the middle of the. He, they don't choose where they're going to be working, like the Catholic Church to, tells them. Okay, go go serve oh. there. Okay, so he, far away from his family, from his friends, he's in the he's in the, an environment that's not his home environment too. He's just mm-hmm. appointed to go there. Yeah. And so for him to have a Canadian traveler with him, it's also entertaining for him, you know, because life in, can be a bit, a bit boring, especially because he doesn't have the internet or connection. So having me um, with him, I think it was also fun because, you know, he got to chat and, and learn about Canada. And yeah, it was great. So he brought me to Wafania. And during Wafania, you ate some head and brain of a monkey. That's right. So that's right. So it's it's part of the local delicacies there. Uh, one day, a, a pygmy hunter came to the. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a really pure Indiana Jones uh, cuisine, you know. This this guy comes with a monkey just killed, and yeah, they boil it, and um, and they give me the head as a sign of respect, and you have to eat the brain and. It was, it was, you know, there's this scene in Indiana Jones where they bring him a monkey head with the brain. Yeah. But uh, I couldn't take that scene out of my mind. I was, I was, I was like, <laughs> oh, I gotta eat it. And they, they were laughing because they were saying I was eating so slowly compared to them, you know, because I was taking my time. And, you know, you, you can see still the eyes of the monkey and the teeth are there. Oh, and it's God. very, yeah, it's, it was just boiled. Like all, you could see all the shape and it, it kind of looks like a human <laughs> head. But, and then you you crack the the jaw open and you you crack the brain open. I mean the the skull and you the the white brain tissue and you they tell you to take a, a piece and you you put it in your mouth and it, it was not that bad. The the meat was actually good. Okay. It was kind of gamey. It tasted like deer, I would say. Yeah. And the the brain was very bland. I would say it was the texture was similar to tofu, so it would be similar to tofu. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Is that the most extreme meal you've ever had? That I can think of right now, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Crikey. Yeah. So you... And it's, it's scary because we know that Ebola is spread, you know. Yeah. With, yeah. Uh, so again, it's one of those roll of the dice where you just have to kind of have faith. If you said no, would that have been a bit of, um, what's the word? Would you have annoyed him or made him angry? If you declined it. Yeah, I was not angry, but I think they would have felt like, oh, you know, like, I don't think they would have been angry necessarily, but they would have, uh, they, yeah. Like ungrateful, maybe? Yeah, I think they would have been like, well, you know, why are you refusing our, 
our hospitality, you know, you should try mm. what we have. Uh, but I think they're pretty open-minded and they understand that not everybody can tolerate. Um, yeah, monkey brain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think if somebody listening to this now happens to be there at some point, you don't have to take it. Uh, just explain the reasons or just be polite. As long as you're nice and polite, people will understand. Uh, but I wanted to. They were not really pressuring me. They were very gentle and, and, and I could have chosen to eat something else. But I chose, I voluntarily chose to um, experience this since it's part of the local cuisine. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I think at least try it, maybe. I mean, <laughs> any vegetarians might be cringing right now, but I think, yeah, if you're a meat eater, at least try it, I think, just to see what, what it tastes like. But being boiled is tough because in the West, or in most places, you're just used to it being in a packet, right? Whatever animal it is. Right. But, but if anything, I... You know, not to turn this into an ethical argument, but I, what I respect about them is that they really eat everything on the animal. Like they don't waste okay. anything. Yeah. Like they eat the eyes. They actually told me to eat the eyes. I, I tried some of the eyes, and the eyes. I prefer the brain over the eyes, honestly. Uh, <laughs> what, what quote that is? That that should be the name of your book. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the brain over the eyes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's very good. I, I'll, I'll keep that as a as Just keep it in mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Okay, so you make your way to Monconto, the Slango, That's Slango right. National Park. So you want to see and some just to, clear, just to, to be clear, you know, I did talk about like corruption and everything, but to, to talk about the positive sides of things too, this priest who never asked me any money for taking me along with him on the ride, gave me food without asking me anything. Mm. And he put some of his fuel uh, in the bike of his friends. I mean, I did pay the friend for the ride to Monconto, which is about 60 kilometers uh, yeah. east. But he, but he did um, provide some of his own fuel. So I just want to use him as an example that, yes, there's a lot of problems in the DRC. Everybody acknowledges that. And there's, it's a challenging place. And there is a lot of corruption. But despite that, there's still plenty of great, nice people, whether it's the first guy I told you about, the immigration agent who was super, super welcoming, or this yeah. priest who's amazing, really, um, and never asked me a penny. They're, they're terrible people and they're amazing amazing people and that's what i like about these trips you you see both the worst of humanity and the best and absolutely uh, key point key point because i think sometimes it's people it's easy for people to have a simplistic view of oh okay well you know you've said there's a lot of corruption therefore the entire country is yes you know it sucks and it's horrible it's like no yes i can go from fighting with agents that want to harass me for money and it's painful and I, and I hate it and I want to leave and go home. But then two hours later, I'm with a priest who's treating me like a brother and helping me and, and being super kind and, you know, your mood changes. So don't despair. There's going to be moments when it will be hard, but you never know who you're going to meet afterwards and that person will help your mood lighten up. So, yeah. Yeah, you can't tarnish the whole nation with a few bad people, right? But I guess people do do that because they don't go to these countries. So... That's right. Um, and, you know, this priest, like, he, you know, just think about it for a second. Like, this pastor in the previous settlement on the river told him about me. So he knew about me, mm, right? But when yeah. he saw me, he said he could have been like, oh, we're not stopping for him. We're just going to keep carrying on. And, you know, we don't need this guy to, to go on, on board with us. You know, he's just going to be taking space in the canoe and we don't yeah, need yeah. him to be there. Yeah. Like, he, he voluntarily chose to assist me at, even though it was going to take some space from his uh, canoe and stuff and the canoe was already quite overloaded with the motorbike and it was insane but 
you know, it just shows me the beauty of mankind. That's what I like when you're in these really remote areas. It it um it peels back everything, and you just see mankind at its rawest point, like the good and the bad. Yeah, and that's why I love doing uh, podcasts and having chats about this sort of stuff, just to get that message out there. That's, that's right. Point. Yeah. So, so yeah, you were asking me about Moncoto, I think. Yeah, and the Salonga National Park. Right. So I get to Moncoto, and again, that's a place where I got quite harassed by the authorities, but nonetheless, you know, it was okay. Um, you know, they wanted me to come to the police headquarters and I told them I was on the phone because I did find one place with Wi-Fi. Like there was an NGO that had satellite Wi-Fi oh, and, yeah. I hadn't con- yeah. and I hadn't had Wi-Fi since um, Inongo. So before the, the start of the jungle. So it had been like two weeks and I really wanted to connect with loved ones. And then they're making a scene because they're saying I'm late to the police station and they're like shouting at me and treating me like a criminal. And I'm like, well, I'm just trying to talk to my family that I haven't <laughs> spoken to in two weeks. Like, yeah, so, and you just have to. Say, you know, I did say you have just some tips to people here. One is, you know, stay calm and don't don't show them your fear. But the other thing is, don't be afraid to stand your ground and be a little bit aggressive, even though that might be counterintuitive to a lot of listeners. They will test you. They will see if they can make you afraid. You might have ten guys shouting at you and aggressively speaking to you. Stay calm, but be firm. You know. They don't have that much power at the end of the day. They're not going to shoot you because they don't have any interest. In, like You're worth more to them alive than dead because what are they going to get out of you if they kill you? They're just going to get fired from their jobs once the government knows about it. And they want your money, but they don't. your dead corpse won't give them anything. Hmm. So keep that in mind. Just stay calm and quiet and show them that you're not afraid. And I told them, that's the trick I used throughout the journey. I had to come up, unfortunately, with this little lie to help me. And the lie was that I knew powerful people in the government and that every time they would go too far and be too aggressive with me, I would just tell them, look, I know people near your bus. I know what you look like and I know who you are and I'm going to get you fired if you keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And I, I said it with such confidence that it almost always worked. I would get one inch from the guy's face, look at him, look at him dead in the eyes and tell him, mate, if you do that again, I'm getting you fired. And I would say that dead serious and he would freeze and it would always work. Every time I would just, um, I was going to say BS, but not BS. I would um, bluff basically. It's it's poker. It's bluff. I had to bluff that I knew somebody that was very high up in the hierarchy and very powerful and near the president. And that if I knew, I was like, I knew, I know who you are now. I know your face. I know where you live. I know your place. Behave or I'm going to get you (laughs) fired. And it is pretty tough, and I don't like lying. It's it's really sad that I had to do that a few times. But you know, when you're pressured into a corner and people are saying that your passport is fake and that yeah. you have a fake passport, you know, and they're acting in bad faith, sometimes you have to uh, fight back. Unfortunately. Yeah. Did I read this? Might be later on that you had some sort of letter or a voice note um, to help you. Yeah, that's right. I, I had a, I had a voice note uh, from the priest in uh, Lingala, which is the main language that they speak in that area, mm-hmm. and it did help a lot because he's a priest, and you know he introduces himself, and then he tells on the voice note that this guy is a great guy. He's here to discover the country, and in fact, at that time I played that voice note, and the um, not the police commander, but the guy that was in charge, when he heard the message, yeah. it really helped the mood. It really lightened. Um, everything became smoother and easier and it kind of ended the situation because now he knows that I know somebody there yeah. and I've got a priest vouching for me and the Catholic church is quite respected in the DRC. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's you know, it's a religious authority, it's a religious figure. So it, it really helped when I would play that message. You know, people had you know they're like, okay, this priest is vouching for this young man. You know, we 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 have to leave him alone. So yeah, it definitely helped. Okay, that's a good little tip. That if you get if you get someone to do that, um, that would yeah. really help. And, yeah, and it's a local language, and it speaks to them directly. Yeah, exactly in, in their own language, absolutely. And you wrote and on you your notes here. Oh, go on. Yeah. Go on. Go on. I was just going to say I got that uh, tip from Afghanistan. Actually, I would I would have a. Uh, oh yes, of course. Yeah. I, I had a voice recording in Pashto that I would uh, play when I would get uh, into trouble with the Taliban. It really helped. So I just kind of kept that idea that a voice recording speaks louder than a written note. Written notes work too, but they don't really know who's doing it, and sometimes. Yeah. People can be suspicious, but if it's somebody's voice, you hear the emotions, you hear the the tone. It it really helps to have a voice recording if you can. Yeah, that's a good tip, especially with WhatsApp nowadays. You can just have it right, or just any recording app should be pretty easy. That's right. You wrote in your notes here that you went to Salonga National Park headquarters and you were dismayed that there's no tourist infrastructure there. That's right. So after that, I showed up the next day to the um, to the headquarters and it's a bunch of cabins and guys on computers. And I ask around and I'm basically being told that they've never had any tourists uh, show up. <laughs> okay. They don't even know really how to accommodate a tourist or what it is. They occasionally show around some VIPs from Kinshasa who fly in and go see some forest elephants. But that's about it. And they don't actually have a, like a proper trail or permits or park fees. They're just... They don't do tourism, period. So, mm-hmm. okay. I'm like, great, it's a national park. And I mean, it's good that they're trying to do conservation, and that's great, but they're, they're focused on anti poaching. That's really their only yeah. focus, they're just preventing poachers. And that's it. There's zero, zero infrastructure. So, you know what? I was dismayed and it was a bit sad. But on the other hand, I felt like, wow. This is such virgin land for tourism that I show up to the gates of the headquarters of the national park and they don't know what a tourist is. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just let that sink in for a second. That is how raw, pure, that's, that's, how, that's how adventurous you can get. You know, you go to a national park's headquarters yeah. Yeah. and they've got zero tourist infrastructure. I think it's pretty hard these days to find that around the world. I'm just thinking about this. Like, they've got a headquarters. Like, People need to think about this. There's a place you can go. There's probably got a building there with someone sitting in there with a computer, and they don't know what a tourist is. <laughs> that's, that's that is baffling. It is. I, it's it's. And thank you for putting it in those words because I I was feeling like what the heck, and um, and yeah, it, it, and the guy, and not only that, but you can imagine how surprised he was to see me show up at the yeah. cabin like it's it's basically the headquarters is basically a bunch a couple of buildings like a few it's nothing impressive you know it's just a few um houses with guys with computers and some maps in in the in, in there and um and they're very friendly don't get me wrong but like it's not a you know it's not the white house or something like this it's a very yeah. very normal building and and i could see in his eyes he was completely shocked to see me like who is this guy and we got friendly yeah, and I asked him about the bonobos because I knew that was the so. So for people who don't know, bonobos are um, a type of ape. They're a little bit smaller than chimpanzees, but they're very similar to chimpanzees um, in many ways. And they're only found in the DRC. You cannot see them anywhere else um, in their natural state. They only exist in the DRC. You can see chimpanzees in many countries, but bonobos are exclusive to the uh, DRC. 
and they're uh, found specifically in San Olga National Park. That's the place where uh, their population is the highest in the world in the in that area. So I asked him about them, and he says, "Well, the problem is around here. Sometimes our park rangers will see some in the distance, but they're so scared of poachers that they'll just run yeah. away, and you won't get to see them because." the poachers just killed too many of them. So they're afraid of humans. Mm-hmm. I said, ah, oh. I said, that's a bummer. But I said, how about, um, you know, would there be any scientists or researchers in that area that maybe are doing some research with the bonobos or anybody that I can meet? And he says, yes, yes, we, they are indeed um, potentially two groups of scientists that live in this area and that area mm-hmm. occasionally that might be here at the moment uh, at this time of the year and they do uh, habitualization with the bonobos so he told me okay but yeah he said this um group of scientists is not there anymore unfortunately but that other one is still there at the moment the problem is that was very far from where i was and i would have to backtrack on my route to get there it was like, like a detour it wasn't on my road at all to kisangani it was a complete uh, detour yeah like ah oh, what do i do so, and there's no way to contact them at all. They're in the middle of the jungle. They don't have the internet. They're, they don't have um, cell phone signal or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. so I can't even ask them for permission to come and visit them because I can't even contact them to begin with. So just pause and think. I'm there in Monkoto. I'm being told that about, was it 300 kilometers away in the jungle, like southwest. So backtracking on the other, another direction where I'd just come after all the challenges of yeah. coming from the way I'd come. I had to go to another direction to potentially see scientists who I did not even know if they would accept me or not. They might say, <laughs> who the hell are you? Get, get out of here. Um, so the possibility of seeing wild apes. And I'm like, oh, what do I do? And then I'm like, you know what? This is it. I've got, I've got to try it. Because mm-hmm. if I don't do it, if I don't try, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. I'm going to die with that regret of you showed up. They told you they were scientists and you didn't even try to see them. And yeah. I thought to myself, if I go there and they're not there or they've already left or they refuse to, to have me around, well, at least I'll have tried and I can live with the thought that I tried. But if I don't do it, I'm always going to be like, oh, you should have, you should have, you should have, and you never did. So I left immediately, went back to Wafania and... Yeah, backtracking when you're going on uh, in a normal country with good roads and infrastructure, it's easy. Yeah. You can just you know backtrack a bit of petrol that you buy and that's it. But in the DRC, way, it takes days just to do, you know, a couple of kilometers. Sometimes it, it, it's painful. So I had to backtrack and then went to and then that's the other problem. There was no real information on how to get there. I had sort of a general idea. So got to Wafania where the priest was. Then I went to a place called Boleco, and then I had to, and I was hoping, okay, I'm going to find some guys with some motorbikes who can maybe take me if I pay them. And people were like, yeah, maybe you'll, in that village, you'll find some guys with motorbikes. So I got to a, a village where I was hoping to see someone with motorbikes, and there was no motorbike. I asked around, they said, no, 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 that was a few months or years ago. Now nobody has them here. So <laughs> they're like, oh, great. Now I need to walk. And then I... I walked, but, you know, it was maybe 200 Ks to get to that uh, place. I'm like, I'm not going to walk 200 Ks. Yeah. So I I found somebody with a bicycle and I asked if I could rent it and drop it at his cousin's, you know, 
further and he agreed against the fee he agreed but the bicycle is not even a real bicycle it's totally destroyed it has it has zero brakes it has no gear so no speed it's it's all um rusty the Ugh. seat is awful the, the handle <laughs> bars barely like it's it's like imagine the worst bike that you can think of with nothing working on it that's what it is you know, it, it, the pedals themselves are not even pedals. They're just a little uh, pieces of metal, but there's no actual pedal. It's, anyways, it was completely broken down. And I foolishly thought I'd be faster with a bike than by on foot. And I quickly realized it was a terrible mistake because, mm-hmm. you know, you're going in the jungle, like cycling in the jungle when you have no experience is with a bike with no gear and no brake. I would fall off. I I, I, I would get injured. I actually got um, a nerve injury on my uh was it my right hand? Yeah. Yeah, I got a nerve injury on my right hand that lasted for months after, like for two months afterwards, because I sure. got an over, it's called over palsy. And basically, it was so hard to cycle that I held, I held the handlebars so tightly and so strongly for so long that I kind of, I guess I starved my nerve. I'm not sure how oh. it works. I'm not a doctor, but. Wow. It was so intense that I, I had a nerve uh, injury and I couldn't eat. Um, with my right hand afterwards for a long time and I got worried. And anyways, it was a terrible mistake. Um, don't cycle in the jungle <laughs> unless you know what you're doing, unless you have a proper bike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Proper one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was just painful. And you know, I mean, people don't realize this, right? But like in the jungle, when it gets dark and you're not at the settlement yet, you, I mean, I had to drag the bike and it's pitch dark. There's no, <sighs> have you ever been, in, have you ever been in the forest like deep at night? Have you ever no. like walked? Yeah, like, you know how scary it can be, right? Like, you, you can't even see a meter ahead of you. Like, imagine that you close your eyes in a closet. That's how dark it is. You, I mean, because the problem is the canopy is so thick, you can't even see the moonlight. I thought, I foolishly thought, okay, the moonlight will kind of help me. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the trees are so big and the leaves are so dense that the moonlight doesn't even penetrate. So, I, can't, I can't imagine it. <laughs> oh, man, it's, is... it's, it's honestly... You know, as a, I would tell you that the DRC was more challenging than Afghanistan by far. Like it was really more. Um, <laughs> Afghanistan was a lot of fear before going there, but once I got there, things were. You know, I did get arrested and stuff, but it was once I was in, um, I was quite comfortable. I was. It was mostly before going that I was scared. Once I got in, it yeah, was better. Yeah. But the DRC, the the whole thing from start to finish, it just challenges after challenges after challenges. It was really by far the hardest place I've ever been to. So you're walking in the jungle, your bike doesn't work anymore. You're, you know, I, I wanted to ditch it. I was like, oh man, I just want to ditch the bike because it's slowing yeah, me down. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather go yeah. by foot. But now I have this promise that I made to this guy that I'm going to deliver the bike at this specific village and I don't want to be, um... and that's interesting because you're, you're, you're alone in the middle of the jungle. Nobody's watching you. I could yeah. be a liar and just ditch it and continue by foot. But I have to be honest, we made a deal. I told him I was going to deliver it there. I have to keep my word because I'm a straight person. I'm, a, I'm an honest guy. And, you know, you, you carry on. And I got to a settlement and I asked around if I, in French, if there was a place where I could crash for the night. And, you know, it's, it's honestly, you talked about the Thailand experience and the bus experience. And it's really as far as your comfort zone as you can be. Just imagine yourself coming out at night of yeah, the jungle, exactly. no light whatsoever. You see a bunch of shadowy figures with some huts. You don't know who these guys are. It's 10 p.m. It's completely dark. And you have to approach them. And, and, and you hope that they speak French. And you can ask 
for a place to sleep and you don't know who they who they are and you're alone and you're vulnerable and it's just very very hard and you have to just have faith in the unknown and they didn't speak french but i asked if they knew somebody who spoke français french and they brought me to i believe it was a local pastor or some local teacher or somebody who had a an education and he spoke enough we could communicate he kindly made some space for me and then i bought a chicken that's a cool thing in the in the Congo. If you want some protein, um, you because the food there can be a bit sometimes um, low in nutrition unless yeah. you like want to eat caterpillar. You know you, you can eat insects, but sometimes you you might want something closer to home. So you can kill a chicken <laughs> for I think two dollars, so like five thousand francs, which is two yeah. and a half US, and then it'll kill it and then boil it for you. And you know you have boiled chicken meat, and they put some uh, sauce or um, what do you call it? Um, uh, the the oil there, uh, palm oil. Yeah, they'll put some palm oh, oil. Okay. And, yeah. And it's quite tasty. So you can get some chicken, and they have very nice. Um, you know the plantain banana, like the big banana yes. that you can. Yeah. Uh, uh, those are great. Like if you need, they're they're cheap, and if you want a lot of carbs to give you energy, definitely go for those. And you know they boil them, and then they it, it's super. It, it's like eating mashed potatoes. They're so tasty and so. So good. You know, it's pretty basic food. You know, you don't have any... Um, no luxuries. Yeah, no luxury, but just, yeah. just Enough. getting some carbs, just getting some boiled banana, plantain banana was just like a treat for me. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I liked about, about this. It resets all your expectations. There's no cake. There's no sweets. There's nothing that's luxurious, but just getting banana felt like heaven after that long difficult day of, of cycling yeah getting a piece of banana it's like oh i get some calories in oh finally you know <laughs> it's just like it's, it's as raw as it gets as raw as it gets <laughs> yeah you're you're pushing yourself as far as you can to the limit and yeah then, and then the next day you know there was um that, so just so people can follow along that was in bolanda b-o-l-a-n-d-a bolanda near a river uh, I think the river is called the Loso River or Lokoro, something like that. And so at this place, there was a little military camp. Um, I think it's for anti-poaching. I'm not sure. But I negotiated with a fisherman to take me across to the other place to continue my journey. And uh, yeah, this guy, uh, this guy was angry at me because he said I hadn't reported to his camp. And I told him, well, I haven't crossed any borders or I haven't crossed any... Mm. you know international boundaries i mean i'm still in the same country i'm coming from a place in the same country to another place that's in the same country why are you treating this like if it's an international border and i'm committing an offense for forgetting to report to you and that's what you need to learn in the drc central power is an illusion the reality is that every piece of land you're on is under the power of who has the biggest guns and right it, it's the law of the jungle literally and that's what yeah. you know like yeah it's well yeah in the environment so it doesn't matter if you have a right visa. It doesn't matter if you're already in the country and it's the same authority. That's on paper. That's not in reality. In reality, wherever you're going to cross, people are going to ask questions. They're going to want to know who you are. You're going to have to explain yourself. And you're, they're going to act as if they're the kings and they own this place. And it's like they're them. So things got pretty um, <laughs> pretty wild with this guy. And yeah, uh, yeah. anyways, it, it was um, – it, anyways, it, might, it, it worked in the end. Um, managed to uh yeah drop the bike um at the another guy's place and then 
there was one guy with a motorbike, but he had no, it was broken and there was no fuel. So he had to take me to another dude who eventually took me to like, you know, a guy who takes you, a guy who takes you to a guy who takes you to a guy who eventually (laughs) has enough fuel to take you to where you want in exchange for cash. And he got me all the way to Munja. And in Munja, there was a uh, Salonga Park station where there was like, two rangers who have a cabin there a very rudimentary basic cabin yeah but there are two park rangers with satellite wi-fi so no. i get there and they'd heard from me from the guy in Moncoto because he had tell them, told them you know this white guy who was interested might show up but he they never thought i was going to make it they the, the guy was like you know are the scientists still he so the guy in Moncoto asked the guy in Munja if the scientists yeah. were still in the area and he told him yes yeah. But when I showed up in Munja, the guy said, what? I never thought you'd make it here. We don't <laughs> even come by land. Like we, we, we use the plane or we use, you know, other, other means, but we don't. Like he was just surprised. He sent a selfie to his friend in Monkoto and the guy couldn't believe it. They, they thought I was crazy for, for having made it. Um, and yeah, it was great to see, to see him. And he gave me directions and I walked another 20 Ks. And eventually I met the scientists and the scientists were very surprised to see me. Mm-hmm. And they asked, you know, who are you? But because you're in the middle of the jungle and they're from um, a foreign country and you're also from a foreign country, you get along well because you're in this very rough yeah. environment together and they feel sympathy for you and you feel sympathy for them. So you get kind of closer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, yeah, sure. If you want to have a look at the the camp and visit our, our station, you know, you're welcome to, uh, to, to come. And that's what I liked because, because I'd done the work of going all the way there, I I kind of knew deep down that it'd be unlikely for them to turn me down. Because yes, once they would see how hard it had been for me to reach them, I mean, it's not like they see tourists every day. They'd never see them. And then this Canadian guy with a backpack comes out of the woods to, to go and talk to them. Why would they? I mean, can you imagine? Like, oh, no, what we don't want you to be around. Yeah, like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Imagine they just went, nah, we don't want you here. You have to turn back. Like they would obviously never say that, but they just must be so shocked <laughs> to see oh, yeah. someone with a backpack. Like you can't even imagine what they're thinking, let alone what you're I thinking. Can't imagine. Even even to this day, I can't imagine. And you know what they told me? <laughs> they said we when we saw you, we thought you were a fellow scientist who'd come in by plane. Yeah. To they thought I was a fellow scientist, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they, they thought like when I saw they asked, they told me afterwards like oh yeah when we saw you we were sure you were like a, another scientist that was coming to join the project. Because <laughs> the funny thing is they've they've now got a story that they'll probably tell forever. Like you know we're working in in the Congo as scientists and then out of nowhere this guy turns up with a backpack, <laughs> like backpack in the Congo. That's their story now for like forever, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and they were so happy and. Uh, we had a good time together talking and it was great. And, and yeah, um, now the problem I'll have to be honest here is that by this time I'd been, I was getting super sick, like, like okay. worse than Sudan, worse than everywhere I've been before. Cause I was drinking the local water. Cause you know, yes, in theory, I should have brought pills, I suppose, but I, I guess I wanted to challenge myself to the fullest. And that meant right. just drinking, like eating what the locals eat and drinking what the locals drink. That was my theory. And I thought, okay. whatever I get, I'll just take pills to treat it later on. Now, in hindsight, this was foolish. And if, if anybody attempts to do something similar, I would advise to at the very least bring some pills to clean the water. Because I ended up having 
terrible stomach problems where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would have to go to the um, uh, the bush, you know, and it was yeah. just, I was, I guess, infected uh, by Giardia. Do you know what is Giardia? No. What is that? It's a parasite in the water. It's um, it, it makes a lot of problems for your internal system. Okay. And um, it really, um, I was losing weight at the time. Yeah. And it, it's really bad for you. And I got it from the water, I suppose, and maybe other parasites that I don't even know that I had. But yeah, I was really weak, but I still got to see the um, the bonobos, which was really surreal because they're in their wild environment. It's their yeah. natural habitat. They're screaming. They're making their nest. They're eating, and you see them, and it's it's just crazy. Um, and especially because this place is not a touristy place, so I felt so privileged to get to see those wild bonobos that nobody else besides scientists, I mean, the people who see them are people who study them. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm privileged enough to see them. I mean, again, it's just great gift of the universe. I am super thankful and, and grateful. I mean, for free, that is. Yeah, incredible. exactly. That, that, that's the craziest thing for free. Um, I, Cause I actually told the head scientist, I said like, you know, like, should I pay something? Like how, how are we going to work? And she was like, no, no, it's fine. Like, uh, the project is funded uh, by uh, the Max Planck Institute in Europe and, you know, one extra person for a few days, you know, I mean, they have a food budget, but for a few days, it's not going to be uh, a big difference if I eat along with them. Uh, the Russians were pretty small. I have to be honest. Uh, yeah. All the scientists there told me that they, they all lose weight because they're in the middle of the jungle. So they have a certain portion of rice. They have a certain portion ah, okay. of this and, yeah. and they really, they all eat local food and, um, you know, the, the, I actually, I was very, I, I respect those guys and those ladies because they live in sparkling conditions with mosquitoes and malaria around. Like I'm traveling through, but, you know, I'm just there passing through the country. Mm. But they, some of them are staying there for like a whole year, a whole year in the middle of the humidity, no contact to their, with their family. They can't even call their family or, or, or their friends. So for one whole year, zero internet, zero communication with <laughs> your, your home. I mean, that's pretty tough. Yeah, yeah, that's that's insane. Yeah, like not even weeks or months. Like some of them, if they're staying for twelve months, that's twelve months with zero contact. With I mean, I guess occasionally they can go to the park rangers' uh, satellite Wi-Fi. So I suppose yeah, if they do go there, yes, they can have a bit of internet. Um, but they go there maybe once every two or three months at most. I'm not sure. So mm -hmm. you know, it's still and it's like one day, and then they have to go back. So it's really really hard. And yeah, they were inspiring. There were young people from different countries, India, uh, the Netherlands, um, Ecuador and South America. So it was very, very uh, variety of uh, continents. You know, you had Asia, Europe, um, Latin America, and they were passionate and they were studying the, the wildlife and the, the flora and the, the fauna. And it's a paradise because it's, you know, no poachers can go there. So the wildlife is intact and you can see like flying squirrels around you and wow. stuff like this so great yeah, yeah. yeah it was it was a highlight if you were to ask me it was definitely a highlight uh but it's one of those highlights where it's typed are you familiar with the four the different types like type one fun and type two fun have you heard of this theory no so like type one fun is it's fun in the like you're eating chocolate it's fun yeah and you feel it while you're doing it and yeah. type two you while you're doing it you don't it's like a workout you know you're doing it and it's hard and it's kind of painful but right. then afterwards, you, you leave the gym and you feel better. 
-hmm. So okay. at the time, it was painful. It was hard. It was logistically hard to get there. I was sick. I was very ill. Very um, My health was in a dire state. So I wasn't enjoying it as much because it was just so hard to like be there and, and keep myself together in terms of my health. Mm-hmm. But looking back and seeing those pictures and thinking back at those memories and the experience, I can appreciate how how great it was. Yeah, because you mentioned your notes, you were starting to feel like proper sick now, weren't you? Oh like, yeah, yeah. Like pretty... after this experience, you had to go back to Wafania to well, I don't know, I've, get I've sorted out. Well, I've actually, um, if you uh, if you if you have the report nearby, you'll. Uh, I walked out of the scientists because I felt too bad and I was worried about. My, actually, the, one of the ladies there said, "Like, yeah, you really seem to be um, in bad shape. I'd advise you to get out while you can, because you know it's hard to. If you're if something happens there, you're you're screwed. And they take a yeah. massive amount of work for the people who work there because if something happens, there's yeah, literally yeah. a plane comes and brings people like once every six weeks, like once every six weeks, some new guys might come in and new guys might come out. So uh, there's like one plane that comes every almost two months and the plane is already booked with things. So you can't add more people to it. And yeah, oh, okay. you're on your own. Like if something, there's no hospital nearby. There, yeah, there's some, yeah. like the locals have clinics with a bit of medications, but it's all rudimentary and basic. If, if you need something, it's mm. all basic. So I walked out of there because I was too worried about my health. Yeah. I was feeling terrible. Went to the park rangers station um, in Munja, the, the two guys who live in their little cabin with satellite, Wi-Fi, internet. Mm-hmm. And they said, you look so terrible. They got me tested for malaria and I had malaria. So oh, I had malaria okay. and I was ill and I stayed in the guy's cabin for three days and he was, oh yeah, I forgot one part. So as I'm super ill and I'm getting out of the uh, Bonobo station to... Um, go and leave to go back to, to the priest I um, I realized in my bag that I I had luckily left most of my money at the priest's um, uh, parish in Wafania because okay. I didn't want to risk too much ca- I didn't want to risk too much cash if I was on rivers and, and the, yep. the boat uh, capsized so I kept like 300 bucks on me yep. and I realized it was all gone and my, when I opened my bag it's like whoa Everything's uh, gone. Somebody at night came into the bag and, and uh, <laughs> maybe, oh, maybe while I was at the bathroom, you know, I maybe yeah. left the bag unattended. So it's gone. And I had only maybe 20 or 15 bucks left in my, uh, or $10, sorry, left in my uh, pocket of my jacket. Yeah. And that was it. All my money that I had on me, $300 <laughs> gone. So I'm like, oh my God. Not only am I terribly sick, feeling like I'm about to die, the worst headache of my life, diarrhea all the time and everything. Now yeah. I've got no money left. Everything's been robbed and I need to make it to Wafania, like 250 kilometers from here. How am I going to do it? So yeah. you can imagine, the, imagine, listeners, the state of panic if you're in the middle of the jungle, stranded, ill, sick, you've just been robbed of all the cash you had on you and you're, you're on your own and it's pretty scary. Mm. So I'm like, okay, stay calm speak to the park ranger and explain to him the situation and as i'm explaining to to him the situation he tests me for malaria because i look too ill i'm positive okay my pills have been robbed too they were in the same bag as my oh. money and now i've got no malaria pills and i'm like oh no are you kidding oh. I'm gonna so he has to give me some of his pills from his own uh private um supply thankfully yeah. 
And I'm like, oh, thank you, because I would have died otherwise. <laughs> and then, but I, to, be, to be fair, though, so I had malaria pills, because that's the one thing I did have, because uh, yeah. I learned in Sudan, you do have, need to have them. But I put them in the same, because I put them in the bag where my money was, and that was that was gone. So I'm just angry at the thief, because, you know, take my yeah. money, but like, yeah, don't, don't my malaria pills. <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, like, I, 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 I get I, I understand he wanted to like steal from me, but you know, at the very least, leave, leave my pills, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let me live. <laughs> but I, he probably needs them too, because you know he's probably sick with malaria half the yeah. time. Yeah. Um. So I was like, oh, terrible. Stay in the guy's house, and it was bad. Like, I would wake up at night with nightmares, and I would sleep, and then the guy would come and like, apparently I was screaming during my sleep because uh, the sure. malaria was so bad. It makes you almost delirious when you have yeah. a really bad malaria. He was getting nervous. I was going to die. He was like, you need to talk to your parents because I'm really concerned about you. So use the satellite Wi-Fi to message them. He's like, the pill's not working hard enough. I'm going to ask the nurse to do injections. And the nurse, you know, he was a drunk. He was a, he couldn't really do his oh. job properly. But he would yeah. come in like, totally wasted in the room to talk to me and i'm like oh can you just leave me alone you know he yeah. smells alcohol like he comes to you and the breath smells like he's intoxicated so it was a disaster but after a few days i felt better and okay i recovered and i was like okay i need to leave now before i get because you know your health can come and go and i was like now i feel better now's the mm -hmm. time to go before it hits me because i want to get out of this place and get back to civilization yeah um so he, so then we have to agree because I don't have any cash on me left, except a few dollars um, that I need to keep for the river crossings. So I tell him, look, Mick, mate, we've got two choices here. Either I walk all the way back to Wafania, but I'm still recovering from my diseases. I'm terribly ill. I'm probably going to die on the way and I've got no money left. Yeah. But I can try. Or you trust me, your friend who's got a bike takes me as far as he can with the bike and then I'll continue on foot and then once I get to the priest's uh, church in Wafania, I'm going to give him whatever money we've agreed on that yeah. I, you want to give me and you'll be passing down in that area at some point so the priest will give it back to you. Yeah. So at first he's kind of skeptical because you know in, in that society people cheat a lot and they lie a lot to each other yeah. and people often give loans and they don't pay back but I, I really insisted to him look I'm a foreigner my word is my word. If I say I'm going to pay you back, trust me, I will pay you back. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk to the priest with satellite Wi-Fi, and the priest confirmed that um, I was a good person and that he could trust me. And turns out that the ranger knew who the priest was. So he was confident enough. He said, okay, fine. We agreed on a price. And... I left with his uh, personal driver and th yeah. this was his only motorbike. bike. So he said this was his only bike. And if something happened to that bike, he was screwed because that was his only bike for him to get around in the jungle. Can you believe that? Like, yeah, that's how bad their conditions are. He's a park ranger who works for a government owned park and their resources are so thinned out and scarce that the guy has got one functional bike to get around. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's like, I'm going to trust you while you're leaving. But if, if the bike breaks down or if something happens to the motorbike, he's going to be screwed with no yeah. means of, he's going to have to walk on foot everywhere to go around the park. So we go there and it's just so tough because you have to lift branches that have fallen. And, you know, there are so many obstacles. and It's, it's a terrible trail, you know. You'd come and sometimes the 
the driver had to take a machete and clear open parts of the jungle because it was so blocked. He had to literally cut out, like in Indiana Jones, chuck, 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 like cut <laughs> vines and stuff to clear uh, detours for us. It was it was intense, man. It was like I, I've seen a lot of crazy things in my life, but I have yeah. to say that was that was pretty uh, pretty crazy. And, um, you know, we had to lift the bike together and, you know, I'm still sick and feeble and weak and we have to lift this head, you know, it's, it's just so intense. And anyways, we managed to go and eventually we got to as far as he could take me and I thanked him and, and it was a beautiful moment. And then he turned back and then from there I continued, I had barely enough money on me to cover the, uh, river crossings, but I was enough. Because I kept yeah. some in my pocket. Oh, and I forgot to say, I had to beg villagers on the way for food because I didn't have enough. I had just enough of it. I had to go and be like, hey, I'm this tourist here who's been robbed. Do you guys have a bit of um, mangoes or bananas for my friend and I? And like, we would just ask villagers to give. And luckily, they had to go coconuts. And there's so many fruits in the jungle that they yeah, had yeah. Yeah. enough for everybody. But, you know, it was still kind of a humbling experience. This white tourist who has to go to a villager and be like, hey. Um, Begging, yeah. Do, do you mind sharing some coconuts with me? Instead <laughs> <laughs> of being oranges, but they're very nice. I have to say their their hospitality is out of this world. They would bring some coke. Once I explained to them the situation, they felt so bad for me because I think they realized I was in a bad situation. Mm. They would ask around, bring me some um, some um, potatoes, wild sweet potatoes that people had. We oh, would wow. boil them. Yeah. And eat the food. Yeah. You know, it's all basic food. It's It's not... It's not, you know, a, a chef's cuisine. It's not nothing luxurious. You might eat just ro- boiled potatoes with no seasoning or nothing, but that's okay because you need those yeah, yeah, calories. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thankful for them. Yeah. Those, whether it was bananas, oranges, coconuts, papayas. Do you know what papayas are? Yeah. 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 We have a lot of papayas. It's like the most ubiqu- ubiquitous fruit in that area. Everywhere yeah. they've got papayas. And then I got back to Wafania and told the priest the story and I couldn't he he was of course shocked and i looked in my bag where i put it inside his um room was still there so the money that i'd kept with him was safe and you know that shows the amount of trust that i had in him because yeah yeah i I had to trust him with sixteen hundred dollars and i knew he was not gonna rob me so yeah that was pretty imagine if that was gone (laughs) oh yeah that 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 would have been yeah if that was gone, that 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 would have been a, a really because getting cash in, you know, people say, "Oh, well, ask your parents or call Western Union." There is no Western Union. This is the yeah. interior of the DLC, the bloody jungle. You're not in New York City where you can just go to the nearest bank and get some money wired in. I mean, it's. I think people sometimes don't realize that yeah. there is no infrastructure. Period. <laughs> so you can't even get Western <laughs> Union. Like even if I had, you know, a billionaire like Elon Musk who was willing to help me with money like how do you send the money like, yeah exactly you can't yeah. you can't just send it with a, p- a pigeon you're gonna have to get the money to me it doesn't matter if you have millions to give me how do you get it it's yeah. it's, it's, it's the yeah so it was it was wild and you did recover oh yeah so i took some i'm the doctor there i had infections on my legs and my foot and blisters that were filled with pus and the the, the doctor at the uh wafania clinic had to um, surgically remove some of the blisters because they were so infected I couldn't even walk anymore. I was I was oh, wow. like limping. I couldn't walk, so he had to cut out some uh, infected uh, wounds and blisters. It was really bad. I think what it is is my because you know 
I've always lived in an environment that's not very humid, that's uh, sort of a northern climate in Canada. My body wasn't used to being in so much humid humidity and heat. And it's not just the heat, it's really the humidity. Because mm-hmm. heat, heat is one thing. Well, you can be in the desert and it's hot, but it's dry. But in the forest, it's so humid that it's the best environment for bacteria and for things to um, proliferate on your on your skin, right? Because you sweat a lot yeah. and it's just, it's just perfect for that. And if you're not used to it, if your body and your system isn't used to that, it can be um, a challenge. Yeah, I think that could be just for any environment, not, ev- not even as extreme as that. I mean, even here, like in... Um... In Middle East, I've struggled with my stomach stuff. I don't know. I don't really know why, but I think it's just maybe a hotter climate. Uh, the food tastes a bit different. Probably has different bacteria. You know, not as extreme as where you were in the Congo, but even as basic as that, the body needs to adapt. Right, right. The body needs to adapt, and it takes time. And if you're going right in with no adaptation, I think it can be a shock. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I would take showers, you know, with with the water that they had. But even then, I mean, of course, it's like a shower from like river water that they mm. they found. So it's not even really clean water. It's just whatever people can get their hands on. But even with a shower, it didn't feel like I was washing myself, even if I was using soap. Oh, yeah. it, still felt, yeah. it still felt like you're so dirty and you're so soaked in your own sweat. And uh, yeah, if if you if you haven't grown up in that environment and you're not used to it. I think I think it can be harsh for the um, for the body and the system to, uh, and also you're exposed to new ger- germs that maybe your body yep. isn't used to. You know, like a, a lo- the local flora, the local uh, environment, the local microbes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And also a question actually I need to ask: Did you ring your parents when he advised you to when you're really ill? Yeah, I, I send them. A, I send them a, a message on Messenger. What did you I, say? I called them both, I think. Or I don't know if I called them. Um, so I just told them, yeah, I'm I'm, um, I'm sick with uh, malaria, but things are things are. I didn't want to worry them too much, so yeah. that's my style. I just told them that things are okay. You know, I'm uh, I'm recovering. I've been uh, I've been robbed of all my money, <laughs> and I'm sitting with an eye in the middle of the jungle. But things are great. I've seen bonobos, and uh, I'm I'm doing well. You know, you kind of give them the vibe that you're under everything's under control. Yeah, and end of a, <laughs> end of a positive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, end of a positive. Hey, Dad, I'm stranded. With, I've been robbed of all my cash on me. I'm stranded and dying of malaria, but <laughs> everything's okay. I hope you're okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great tip. <laughs> oh, funny. but it's all, it's all about the delivery rather than the contents of what you write so but i actually it's funny um i did ask the ranger to record like a voice message that he could send them to feel better okay. so uh yeah the ranger spoke french and he made a voice message that he i think they were also worried because of the hand mostly because my hand remember how i told you my nerve oh, yeah. was uh, yeah. injured yeah. that was worrying them because i sent them a video of me not being able to move my fingers Right, and that really worried them uh, because they, 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 they were like, "Oh yeah, you're really in bad shape." So uh, they were definitely worried, but you know, I, I I didn't want them to be too stressed, so I I kept myself uh, calm and I I gave them the impression that things were okay. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I, I did wonder when reading the report, how did you? kind of deal with that situation if he's advising you to ring your parents that's a pretty dire situation 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. If the guy is telling you you should call your parents, that is that is a. Uh, it, it was looking back. I do realize how dire it was because if somebody's telling you to do that, it means that they're really, really. I think he was concerned I was going to die in his cabin. Um, okay, right. I, I don't, but I don't think he. I think it was the second night, like when I had nightmares and I, I was, I was very sweaty in the day. Like, just to give you an example, so this is the tropical rainforest, which is basically besides the Sahara, it's like the hottest place on earth, right? The tropical rainforest, very yeah. humid, very warm, and I was. My fever was so high, I was freezing um, in my... Uh, I had to ask him to pile on like blankets on me because I was super cold. And in the middle Got of it. the yeah, yeah. jungle, the Congo, <laughs> and like, oh, I'm, I, I felt like I was in Nunavut and I was just so cold. Please bring more blankets. So that's how <laughs> my, my fever was awful. And I think that's when he really panicked because when he, I, I kept asking him for like more blankets to cover me. Yeah. And he was like, oh man, this is guys... But that's why he asked the guy to inject me, and he he didn't just use the uh, oral pills. He mm. wanted me to get a a needle injection to to have a stronger treatment. Yeah. But yeah, I guess to answer your question, I had to stay calm because even if he's telling me ring your parents, even if he's getting worried and he's nervous, I'm the patient here. I'm the one who is involved in the situation. I need to remain like. Of course, part of me might have wanted to panic, but what what good is that going to do? Even if I yeah. panic, it's not going to save me. So I think I'm very stoic, just like with the rebel thing where I had to cross the checkpoint. I just realized that certain things are under my control and certain things are not. And I just need to keep my calm and focus on what I can. Take the medications, sleep, rest, eat food to be healthier, and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, because I think we were reading this and we were just saying there are a couple of factors in your favour. Uh, the one that you are quite young. Um, you've got some medication on the go. I think if you've got medication, some sort of medication, and you're young and relatively fit, you've got a chance. But I think if you're a bit older and you know a bit more frail, it can probably right. be the other way. So I think you had a chance. Right. But I think it's also... I uh, took the medications as soon as I had the the symptoms, um, yeah. so that helped. Um, but also, yeah, I, I'm not sure. It's it's strange. I, I guess what you're asking is why wasn't I more worried? Maybe in the moment. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's. I mean, I, I I think it's when you're in those moments. Um, you're not even thinking clearly because I remember talking to my brother on the phone and I was under the effects of the anti-malaria drug. Yeah. And he told me that I sounded like I was um, not sober, you know, like, like I was okay. um, drunk, intoxicated. But I think the, yeah. the drugs are just so powerful that you don't even fully realize what's going on. Like your brain is in a different sort of mind and state of mind. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, I think it was just... Uh, I was daydreaming. But you did recover and you made your way via a few places, uh, yeah. Boend and then Ikela and then finally, obviously not finally, but obviously next place is Kesangani, which is a major hub, I'd imagine. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, yeah, from Ufania to Buende, you know, just getting bikes was tough, things breaking down, but 
eventually got it to one day. Once I was going to get to one day, I wanted to give up because it was just too hard. Like I just, the, the, oh, really? the, it was just okay. tough. I was like, oh, I want to give up. Yeah. yeah. But um, I mean, you know, like I said, when I was limping and, you know, the doctor yeah. had to, you know, I, I was just covered with infections and it was tough. And I was like, oh, even sitting on a bike was painful. Right. Um, but I was like, no, like you, you've said the challenge, you, you got to do it. And I, if I had wanted to quit, I could have taken a flight back to Kinshasa where I started, but I could there was no flight to Kisangani. So there was no flight eastward, only westward. Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, no, I'm not going back to where I started. I've already done all of this. Yeah. It's such a shame to yeah. go back. To. So, but also I recovered. I said, look, just take some days off in one day, recover, sleep, eat, and don't do anything and just take a few days off. And you'll feel better. And sure enough, I did feel better. Yeah, I regained my energy, and then I managed to make it to Ikela. But that was a very tough four-day trip with two very nice uh, local civil servants that were traveling with their bike, and they took me along. I gave them cash, but they took me with them. And yeah. again, that was also tough. You know, sometimes there are barricades where villagers block the road and ask people for cash. And like I said, it's a lot of the jungle. You know, it's power versus power. Yeah. And um, you have to talk your way through those checkpoints. So it's not even just, it's just so many challenges. There's the physical challenge of just being in the heat of the jungle. There's the health challenge of being sick. And there's the food challenge of finding food that you can eat that's healthy for you. There's a psychological challenge of having people block the road and ask you for cash, basically extort you. It's all of these <laughs> things combined that add to the difficulty if it was just one of them you could tackle it but because it's all of them together it really um you know it really adds a lot to your psyche and and i will say i can see why a lot of people think that they, they couldn't make it because at times it does get it takes every ounce of courage that you have to, yeah. to push through it, it really does but then there are great moments when you finally get to a place and it's time to just relax and eat. And maybe you've been harassed by people before. Maybe you've, you, you, you were sick with diarrhea. Who knows? And then you get there and the guy brings you the tastiest pineapple you've ever had in your whole life. <laughs> and it, it, it's just, the, it melts in your mouth. It's, and to this day, the best fruits I've had were in the DRC. The best bananas. It tastes, it's so, I can't even describe it. If you ever happen to go there, you'll understand. It's nothing like what we have in our stores. It's all grown locally in the forest there, and it's mm -hmm. right by where you are, by the trees around the road. And the, the pineapple is just so sweet and soft, and it doesn't taste acidic at all. Not like what you get in the stores where there's an acidic aftertaste and it can hurt your teeth. It's just pure um, del uh, delight. And, and so, yeah, a small thing like a, a great pineapple can make your day and you appreciate <laughs> the small things. You're like, oh, some calories, some sweets. I love this. Well, I think from being almost at death's door, I don't know how close you were or what, what, how close you think you were to maybe like almost not fully recovered, but recovered enough to, you know, walk around and eat a pineapple. That's quite a big contrast, isn't it, over a small amount of time? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, I think it's... it's when you get to that end point where you can just walk and get a pineapple, like that's a long way coming from you know laying in that guy's office when he's telling you to ring your parents. That's quite a long, big jump. That. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. You go from such a low abyss. <laughs> yeah. That, in comparison, 
anything becomes glorious and becomes yeah. yeah. And I think that's a great life lesson that I learned. It's 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 almost like a philosophical insight that the it's it's paradoxical, and I know people may not like to hear that, but sometimes the more you suffer, the more you learn to enjoy. Like I think if you don't suffer in life, you're in, it's harder to appreciate um, the good things and the beauty. Mm. Like sometimes it's good to have it easy, but if you have it too easy and you have you don't have enough flows, you might lose perspective. Yeah, and. Uh, you don't need to go as far as where I went, where you're almost dying and somebody's telling you to ring your parents. Of course, that's <laughs> very extreme. But the, the point remains, if you have those lows, then the smallest high will have a big impact and you'll really feel it. And like you said, just to, after barely being able to walk and laying there almost dead, getting some pineapple was like if you'd brought me a million dollars. It was like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like just basically one end to the other. It's it's pretty incredible that you carried on because the easy, or some people might say the sane answer would be to try and at least get back west, um, buy right, some sort of transport. Down, right. mm. Yeah, I think um, that's that's a good point. Do you, do you think? I mean, this is of course a hypothetical, but like in your case, if you 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 think you may have considered uh, flying west, even if that would have meant going back to ground zero to where you started already. I think if. I uh, personally, if I went through what you went through with the malaria and all that sort of stuff, yeah, I would have probably said, yeah, that that's as far as I'll go. I'll take that. That's not a bad journey. I think I would have done that. That's just yeah, me. and I think I was really near that point. And 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 um, yeah, that that post Bonobo uh, experience with the disease and everything, and it was really the worst I'd ever been in my whole life health wise. And I'm a pretty yes. fit guy normally and stuff. Like I used to do country, uh, cross country running, and I was, you know, I've always been quite athletic. But yeah, it was. I mean, it was just terrible. But like, pu- purely based on health, more than anything else, I think. You know, yeah, not like not like just I fancy a a bacon sandwich. It's more about like I've been through almost death. Like I just need to go back and recover. Um, mm-hmm. And just and just take what you've done. I think I, I think I would have done that based on health. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think um, I think what's strange is that my health would come and go, so it would be mm. really bad for a while, and then I'd feel better, and then <laughs> I feel better for a few days, and feel like it would come and go. I'm not sure if it had to do. I was on antibiotics, and the guy had given me some medications to take, and um, but I think that's something I learned from this, and this is really not to sound. Uh, I'm trying to stay humble here, but after getting some feedback on the story that I wrote that I shared with people, a lot of people have uh, told me like, wow, like what's most impressive about it is the willpower. And I never, yes. and I'd never fully realized this about, um, you know, like we don't, sometimes you, you take things for granted and I'd, I'd never really realized that maybe that's something that um, I suppose uh, it's a defining characteristic, characteristic of, of myself that willpower to just say, okay, you've set that goal, you know, try to carry through, try to reach it no matter what. And yeah, it, it is even now telling you the story and reminding myself of all the things I've, I've gone through. Um, it's almost astonishing. I can't, I can't even understand how in the moment I had the willpower to carry through. But I think I just had that dream of, I want to make it to Kisangani Overland. I want to tell myself that I didn't fail at the goal and and like, I just want to do it. Like the, the dream of overlanding this 
even though there was no monetary reward, there was no prize, there was nothing at all except for myself. It's almost like I wanted to prove myself that I could make it. Yeah, and what was your feeling when you got to Kisangani? So, so yeah, so once I got to Kisangani, it felt like a relief because I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Yeah. Um, but because I was so overwhelmed with all of those things and even going to Kisangani, there were more problems with checkpoints and stuff. It had it, been so much and so overwhelming that I couldn't even process because I got to Kisangani hoping that it'd be a bit like Kinshasa, like they would have supermarkets and mm. it would be a developed city with good infrastructure. So my hope was, oh, Kisangani is like the cherry on the cake where I can, you know, <laughs> finally get out of the jungle and enjoy. And I get there and I realize the city has no electricity because the power station broke down. Like zero electricity. They have to use generators, fuel generators, a yeah. few hours per day. The running water comes a few hours per day. Sometimes it skips days. So like there's no real running water working except for a few hours here and there. People have to store it in buckets. There's no electricity. You have to pay guys who have generators uh, to, to charge your phone. There's no real supermarket. There are a few convenience stores with some goods that come from Goma. So they do have some canned food, mm. um, some, um, some cheese from Goma, some sausages, some... Uh, some 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 products, of course, that are nice to have, but it's mostly convenience stores. They don't have like a proper supermarket with you know the goods that you'd want to have. Yeah. So it was a bit of a disappointment because I was like, oh, <laughs> Kisangani, Kisangani is finally you know where I get my luxurious hamburger and like I just wanted a pizza, you know. I just wanted <laughs> yeah. after all those after basically two months of eating uh, cassava, which is uh, the main staple dish, and you know cassava is um, a. Uh, it's kind of like a potato, sort of. Okay. So after two months of eating uh, cassava and um, insects and local food, I just wanted my dream was a burger. I couldn't. I I just dreamed of <laughs> or some French fries or it could be some pizza, whatever you want, something Western. Yeah. And I got there and like, okay, there were some sausages, so I got some sausages and some cheese, and that was my treat. But overall, Kisangani, yeah, was was disappointing. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't the big resting place where I, that I thought it would be. However, the real highlight for me of Kisangani was the person I met there. And that was in one of those convenience stores. And I ended up meeting, I, I go into a convenience store and I see this elderly white man and I'm surprised and he's surprised to see me and we start <laughs> chatting. Yeah. And it turns out it's an Italian missionary who came to the DRC in 1981 so he'd been there for 40 years. Yeah. He'd left, he'd left priesthood uh, after two decades and he started the more like secular life with, and he'd married a local woman. And he has the craziest stories. He went through two wars in the DRC. Rebels tried to kill him. He had to hide in his church and all sorts of crazy stories. And, and he's like, well, you know, I never see tourists. I can't even believe. I'm like, I tell him, oh, I, by the way, I came from Kinshasa, Overland. He's like, what? Are you serious? Like this guy couldn't believe it. He's like, "Are you like?" It was impossible for him. He he thought it was a joke at first. So when he hears that, you know, we exchange numbers, and in the evening he invited me to stay at his uh, place. What a lovely guy! He invited me to his home, and 
and I told him like I just I don't want to stay too long. I told him like I just want to stay you know maybe two three days because I don't want to abuse your hospitality. But I think mm. he could see how broken I was at that <laughs> yeah. stage. So he let me stay for like a whole week. Like he just let me stay, oh, wow. yeah. and he would uh, he he had very good food. Like his wife would cook um, Italian food. Like they they had the ingredients that they would get from the convenience stores, and they would manage to cook. I wow. guess he would go to Bomba once in a while. So he could, I get like European cuisine in his house. And it was just a sanctuary where I could feel, oh uh, yeah, um, you know, I get a bit of comfort and luxury and it was great. And this guy really helped my mental health. Like meeting him, I even told him, I said, meeting you is giving me a massive boost of energy. Mm. Yeah, because I guess, like you say, you almost think about not you know not getting any further but if you met him boosts your energy then what are you thinking just carry on straight to the end to the border right right so at this point um so this one that gets a little tricky because the east is where there's a lot of instability in the drc i mean everywhere but especially in the east there are there's pretty big wars going on and really dangerous rebel groups that are far more dangerous than the ones I encountered before. Yeah. And so it becomes a, a, a big question. Like, do I take a plane? Do I continue by road? And, um, you know, I said, no, I'm going to go by road. Cause I learned that there was one road. So I wanted to go to the Okapi reserve to see some, uh, big knees and hunt with them and the Okapi reserve. And I managed to, get there with some Somali truckers. So the cool thing is from Kisangani, the road was large enough that some trucks could go to Uganda and back. So that was yeah. a good thing. Kisangani is large enough that they, they do have trucks coming in and out, but it's a terrible road. It's a dirt road and it's broken with potholes, but nonetheless, it hitched with them. Yeah. I got to the Okapi Reserve and uh, yeah, it was this fiasco of, you might have read it in the report, I, I guess. Um, yeah this Afghanistan thing comes back because Jeff Semple from Global News who'd made up the story that I'd been arrested on suspicion of being part of ISIS, which was never the case. It was not, it had nothing to do with ISIS, but he'd put that in the news and it was on the internet. And when I went there to uh, ask the Okapi reserve, if I could um, hunt with some pygmies, you know, they Google my name and they saw that and I ended up getting, I mean, it's like a movie. This whole thing is like a movie. I, I ended up getting arrested and having these guys with machine guns and full military gear um, search my bag and my, completely search it and put me under quote unquote house arrest in my hotel room. Like they were sitting right outside of my hotel room, not letting me go with guns. I couldn't, I had to ask permission to go to the toilet and just pause and think, imagine listeners that you are in a hotel room and there's two guys with machine guns controlling your movements and not telling you what's going on. And you're asking them if you're under detention. They don't like, they don't answer anything. You don't know what's going on. You don't understand. Mm. And they're telling you that they're getting orders from... I, was, I could see they were on the phone and this was getting a big thing. And people were getting involved and this was getting out of hand. So I try my best to understand. They wouldn't help. So I just talked to the uh, Canadian Embassy. I mean, the emergency response... Uh, unit in uh, Ottawa just to inform them, you know, here's my name, here's what, just to let them know, I knew that they couldn't do much, but I wanted yeah. to let them know if something happens, at least I want my parents to know, like if these guys decide to shoot me or whatever, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. At yeah. the very least, I want people to know what happened. And 
because they can make up a story. They can say, oh, this guy broke his neck uh, on a bike accident. You know, they can just say whatever they want. So I thought if I put it on a record and I tell them, at least they know where I am. They know what's going on. So whatever happens to me, people will know what happened. Mm -hmm. So I inform them. And then the next day, you know, they bring me to the commander's office and yeah, just more. I mean, I, I did, you know, I, there was your podcast on that online and there was the BBC interview and there was all, all of these <laughs> things that were there to prove that I was just a, a tourist, but I guess they were so afraid because there is an Islamist group that's not far from that area called okay. the ADF and they're linked with ISIS. They're like mm -hmm. a local African Islamist group, uh, the ADF, and they operate uh, a bit east of that area. So they were really scared because of that. They thought I was maybe linked with with that Islamic rebel group. And yeah, eventually I asked, can I leave? They said, no, you can't leave because now the uh, governor wants to meet you. And he wants, and this was getting out of hands. And I called the embassy and I told, uh, I basically played them against each other. So I told the embassy that if, if they didn't do something that I was going to inform the media yeah, to, to put pressure on them. And then mm -hmm. I told the police guys that if, <laughs> if um, you know, the embassy was really worried and it was a big situation and they really had to, uh, to let me go. Otherwise their face would be on the news and, you know, just kind of play them. And then eventually after a few days, I, uh, I got the green light to go. But it was it was annoying because I had already all this. I mean, just pause and take off everything we've talked about today, like all the disease and all coming. Yeah. You know, everything I'd gone through from Kinshasa, the rebels, the boat, the shipwreck, the mud, the swamps, the all the bonobos and this and the, the corruption and all of that, and you end up being treated like a terrorist in a in a, in a reserve that you're trying to visit as a tourist. It was it was really tough for my morale. I would say even more tough than the malaria. That was really the oh, low wow. point for me. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. yeah, because I'm like I'm I'm here trying to visit after yeah. everything I've done, and I'm being treated like a filthy criminal. You know, yeah. like, like it's like the malaria. I, I, I'm not angry at the mosquito because I understand no, it's, it's true. <laughs> but there, I'm like, you guys are insane. There's a podcast by James Hammond. You can go online and find <laughs> it and solve this within 30 minutes. Why are you making like? It was more like the incompetence that annoyed me, yes. and the fact that they they couldn't realize that I was. You know, it, it was just, I mean, anyways, Jeff Semple is really, um, I, wow. actually emailed him. I emailed him in January asking him, or in December, I can't remember, in, a couple of months ago, I emailed him to ask him if he could take it down. And I told yeah. him all the story and I told him, you know, this is what happened to me in the DRC. And because of your story, I was arrested and yada, yada, yada. Like, can you take it down the video? It's causing real yeah. problems for me. And he didn't even bother to reply. Yeah, that guy's got a lot to answer for. Um, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we touched on it much last time, but when I was reading that, like that's just so irresponsible having that online, isn't it? Because the problem is, he he could take it down, but someone could copy it or whatever. It's just it's just unfortunately there in the yeah. sphere of the or the meta universe, really. But yeah, that's just a an awful. Yeah, but awful I said he has a lot to answer for, and uh, I'll see what I'll do. You know, I'll think about things later on perhaps but yeah uh at the very least you should reply to my email at the very least. if you're listening to this jeff i don't know if he's going to stumble on this but if he is like i've asked you by email to take down the video 
you know that I'm a real tourist. You've already understood the whole situation and you understand that the Taliban never arrested me because they thought I was ISIS. You've never provided any evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, the Taliban themselves have said that it was not, it had nothing to do with ISIS. It was because they were suspecting me of being a spy or a missionary. They didn't know who I was. So this thing is, um, anyways, it's, it's a big can of worms, but um, yeah. for sure it caused a lot of problems for me. Yeah, it's unbelievably annoying. But luckily, you did get out of that situation again. Yeah, 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 I did. But it was it was a blow because, you know, like the pygmy chief wanted to hunt and I yeah. wanted to go. Yeah. With him and like, I could see he was really, and like they actually threatened him. They, um, these B-thirds, I'm not going to swear, but these B-thirds, they, they threatened him with arrest. They said, if you take this guy in the forest and you go hunt with him, we're going to make problems for you. Like we're going to, you know, arrest him arrest you uh, they, they were threatening this guy they were bullying him and i was like you guys are insane and you're paranoid what would a terrorist like this whole thing made no sense to begin with like why mm. would a terrorist go and want to hunt antelopes with pygmies in the jungle <laughs> yeah. like, I just don't understand. like it makes no sense and i think that what that's what really pained me it was the that i, I could see that humans they can really be irrational sometimes and, and that really uh, disappointed me yeah, and we come to another guy that you meet called Maxime. Yeah, that's the guy, the French guy. That's right. Yeah. That's that's him. Yeah, French guy, Maxime. Yeah. So he, he, he seems an interesting character, doesn't he? Well, he's kind of the culprit because he yeah. he was the one. It wasn't the locals. To to their credit, it was not the locals who were driving the story insane. Maxime is a French mercenary that's hired by the Congolese government to um, train the rangers at this Okapi reserve. He had served in Afghanistan as a soldier. That's what he told me. Yeah. Uh, before, when we first started talking, before he knew who I was. So he'd served there and he'd fought the Taliban and he probably lost some friends there, I would imagine. But he'd been there yeah. with the French army for a few years. And so what I think happened is that once he saw the story, yes, there was the Jeff Semple thing with ISIS that probably got him really worried. But on top of that, I think he just wanted to... I think he, he, he was shocked that I'd gone and met people that he'd fought against him himself yep. as a soldier. Mm. And I think he, he just wanted to perhaps, I don't know, avenge some of his lost comrades, or maybe there was some emotional baggage there. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think, uh, I think there was a bit of a revenge thing going on because the locals told me like they, everybody was gossiping and I could hear everything because everyone yeah. was talking to me and, what I figured out was he was the he was the one he was the one with the good internet connection to even look me up online in the first place. The well, police it. doesn't even have a good computer. He's the one with like a big office and you know he's got a big computer station and good internet. So he he's essentially the the one who um, made all the problems. <laughs> yeah, because I think he was like the the focal point of that story. Because people might think, oh, how do they even know about Afghanistan? But like like you say, just there, yeah. like he said he fought there, he probably lost a few of his friends. And imagine, you know, not just him, but imagine people like him who fought over there. And then, you know, 20 years later, they just walk back in, you know, and they see a guy like you just go and sort of be okay with them, you know? It must be quite a weird feeling for them. Almost like what they'd done was pointless, which it was, but like, you know, must be a hard feeling to have. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering about it. I was wondering if it's, like, do you think it's because he felt maybe, I mean, this is, of course, pure 
hypotheses and speculation, mm. but do you think it's a feeling of vanity and me going there makes him realize how um, pointless his fighting was? Uh, yeah, it's a tough wondering? one. Like, why would psychologically somebody do that? I, I tell you what, I, I'm no expert here and it's only speculation. Because when I read that, I was like, ah, this is what I think he might be thinking. I don't actually think it's personal to you. I think here is a guy who obviously said his country lost some friends and has now seen a guy travel there with people who he fought against. And there's a sense there that, oh God, like, you, you know, you actually traveled there, was it three months or 10 weeks in Afghanistan? On the whole, pretty okay. Hospitality was great. You saw some stuff, met some people. You probably had some coffee and tea with some of these Taliban guys, whatever. And what he was told before probably serving is that these were the, you know, the, en the enemy, if you like, which, uh, you know, people can dis discuss that if they are or not. But like, I think him seeing you travel there kind of freely made him feel like, oh shit, what I've done is just, what was the point in that? And he lost friends over that. And I think that's pretty disheartening, I think. I don't think it's personal to mm -hmm. you. It's just personal to so the situation. The meaninglessness. Right. It's basically, in a way, what you're saying is when he saw what I did, he kind of realized perhaps he'd lost years of his life doing something vain and, and meaningless. Or at least that, that had no real value. Or that, that didn't have the value that he thought it had when he was doing it. Yeah, because he probably couldn't believe that you traveled there for 10, 12 weeks. And I know there was like obstacles, like checkpoints, but you're relatively okay. You've done it. You saw some stuff, met some people. You know, in his mind, he might be thinking, well, you know, these, these guys are awful. Like, they're going to kick you out or kill you. But like, that's, you know, very far from the truth. So I think that must have been right. a bit, bit of a truth bomb for him a, a little bit. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's definitely partly that. Um, and then I think um, partly the um, ISIS thing. Because when they interrogated yes. me, the police, the first yeah. thing they asked was, did you, get, did you get arrested in Afghanistan? So I think he probably saw the... Uh, and in fact, on YouTube, that's the first thing that comes up when you type my name. Oh, or at okay. least at the time it was. Yeah. So, so I, I, think, um, I think it's a, a mix of both. Like you said, he, he had that moment. And then the ISIS thing gave him the excuse to act out his anger. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, this is all speculation. We don't know yeah, what really went on in his mind, but yeah. I think that's because uh, because for a long time, because my thinking, James, was we speak. Like, he speaks French. I'm Quebec. I'm from Quebec. We speak the same language. We have a similar mm -hmm. culture. I thought he would have like, empathy and sympathy, just like the scientist had. I was expecting him to be a bit like the scientists, to be like, oh, like this mm. guy is coming here, great, you know, like adventurer i'm happy to talk so i think that's what pained me is that i was expecting to get welcomed a little bit like the scientists had where they'd been really really helpful and, and uh kind mm, yeah. and instead i was really like a terrorist and that's what pained me a little bit yeah no excuse at all you know not not, not like um forgiving maxim here but yeah it's, it's an interesting one to analyze that all right I think. yeah yeah and and i understand that i mean because his job is to keep, you know, the security of the reserve. So from his perspective, he might be like, oh, well, this Islamic rebel group called the ADF is, um, you know, uh, nearby in the area. Therefore, I don't want to take any risk. I don't want to be in the reserve security threat. 
But it makes no sense from a logical standpoint because mm. there's like there's the BBC interview, there's the Nomad Mania interview, there's yep. uh, French uh, Quebec articles online. There's your podcast. We've done two podcasts by that point, so he could have seen those two as well. Yeah. When when you Google my name, so there was clear evidence if he'd been a bit serious that I really was who I said I was, which is an adventurer and a traveler, and anybody with good faith who like listens to. Yeah. Any of our previous podcasts, the first or the second, will clearly see that you know there was nothing to worry about. So I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think he uh, something a fuse went on in his mind uh, when when he saw that, and yeah, it was it was really a very low moment. It was physically much easier than the malaria or the disease that I'd had before, yes. but emotionally it was crushing. It, I really I remember that it was especially because it was at the end of the journey. And I was looking at the Okapi Reserve as a, a small reward for my journey. It was a, a, a main uh, site that I wanted to visit on my way out of the country. Yeah. In fact, it was like the last real touristy place that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. So I was looking forward to that as, you know, my little reward for having made it so far. And then I was denied. <laughs> and even when they freed me, they said, you're not going to. I said, well, now that you guys have uh, freed me, can I, can I go in? Can I, can yeah. I do the hunt? Yeah. So no, no, you're not allowed, and it was just frustrating. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. it is what it is. I mean, I guess I learned from the experience, and but the cool thing is, I went north to Isiro, and then east, and then from there, I met a. Um, I said, okay, well, they don't want to help me the, the reserve, whatever. I'll do it on my own. So I just stopped at a village, and I asked around if mm-hmm. somebody could show me um, some pygmy settlements, and then. One of the pygmies agreed to come with me to the forest, and in exchange for a bit of money, he showed me how he collects uh, honey up in oh, the nice. up in the tree. They, they climb the tree, and uh, it's really impressive. He does a bare hand, very tall tree, super high, and he just puts um, a like a, a backpack of leaves made of leaves on his back. Yeah, and he just climbs the tree bare hand all the way up. <laughs> To get the honey, and there's some smoke coming out of the. Um, there's like a. Yeah, he, he he burns something that he puts in the backpack, and there's smoke coming out of it, and that's made to scatter the bees away so yeah. he can connect, connect the honey. So it's really. It's a genius uh, process, and it's really interesting. So at least I got my revenge on the Okapi Reserve. <laughs> I got to see them collect honey, and I was happy about that. Yeah, another thing ticked off, and at least you got to see that, because then. Yeah. If you got to Uganda, really, then really obviously. It's really impressive. I mean, I mean, people you know who do rock climbing, they they use uh, most of them. They use security or ropes and stuff. And this guy is just climbing this tree and, and hanging on to vines like a movie, you know, and like uh, like a Hollywood movie. He's climbing and he's not even scared. And I spoke to the non pygmy Congolese around, and they said we're not even brave enough to do this. We <laughs> we're too scared of death. But they're very agile. They're shorter, shorter frames, so they're lighter and they're able to move around and they're very gifted yeah very impressive nice and after that was that kind of just making your way to the border to uganda is that was that the main last thing you did that's right that was the the last real thing i uh i experienced before uh making my way out i mean you know on the way you had people who you know may have thought i was like a one guy in a town thought i was a mercenary i mean i've skipped over a lot of encounters with local authorities that yeah were always sour but it would be pointless to just repeat them after but i've I've gone over 
you know, plenty of fights that happen with the local authorities. But I think for the purpose of the discussion, it's I don't want to just focus on the negative, but definitely um, it was it was it was painful. I mean, even walking out of the Congo was hard <laughs> because they were threatening to arrest me because they said my visa had been given in Burundi and I was not a resident of Burundi and therefore oh, I've been illegal. And, and, I'm, and I'm laughing at them at this point. I'm like, you morons. I've been in the country for three months and they let me in and it's perfectly legal. And the visa was given legally by the embassy. And you're just looking for an excuse to harass me. And yeah. I was just laughing. Like, I'd seen rebels. I'd been arrested as a suspected terrorist. I had diarrhea, malaria, uh, broken hand, everything you can think of. I was not scared of those guys. Like at this point, they were threatening to arrest me, and I was just—they had no idea that I just come overland from Kinshasa, three thousand kilometers away. They don't—they did not understand what I'd been through, and I was just laughing at them, threatening me with their little arrest as I'm almost out of the country. Mm. And I'm thinking, you guys are fools. You have no clue what I just went through. You have no clue what all the obstacles that I've had to overcome to come here. And they thought they were going to scare me with their threat of arresting me and i could just laugh it off and what was your feeling when you got over to the border relief i i uh i i saw the um by the way just for the info i, I played the recording of the priest um when they were oh, yeah. with him, yeah. just to and they were like oh we don't care about him he's not our boss you know they were just being nasty and uh, just being ill i don't know it, it's it'd be for another discussion another day but there's definitely a lot of resentment for you know, legitimate reasons in the Congo mm. against um, yeah, yeah. outsiders. And I understand that, but I think it's channeled at the wrong people because I'm just a traveler coming through. I'm not responsible for, you know, the politics of the place or I'm not the owner of a mine. I'm not, I'm not in a position of power. I'm just a random guy. So I think it's undeserved. Like they shouldn't channel the anger at me. I understand their anger, but they shouldn't channel it, channel it at, at me. You know, mm. um, I'm not, the no one, politician. yeah, no, no politician yeah. exactly. Uh, but yeah, my feeling was relief when, when I, I, I mean, they even asked to see my vaccination cards on the way out of the country, which is never. <laughs> I mean, normally people ask you that on the way in, right? Like, okay, I can see why they would ask on the way in, but not on the way out. You're leaving, but you know why they do that? Just in case you forgot, you forgot them or you lost them, then they can ask you cash. cash so it's yeah, a way, money. another way to bribe you to get a bribe from you. I say, how much money did you have left? walking over the border um i honestly can't remember the exact number but mm. um must have been uh, whew, how much did i have left i think at least at least uh, a thousand oh, so right. wow yeah I, don't, yeah I don't remember the exact uh, number but it was uh, the, the the expensive thing is the uh, the bikes and the fuel because the food is not expensive whatsoever Mm -hmm. And for for sleeping, you know, in the jungle, you can always find a uh, space somewhere. Um, if you've got a sleeping bag, like people are very accommodating, and it's not going to be expensive. You know, you don't have you don't have to get a five star hotel, so it's pretty cheap. Even if you give them a donation, it's going to be cheap in the long run. So it, the the real cost is uh, fuel and transport because that's okay. hard to get. And when you do get somebody with a bike, they have all the negotiating power, and they can ask whatever yes. they want. And yeah that that's the thing the, the real cost is the transport cost um food is quite affordable if you're if you're okay with eating local food mm -hmm. but that's all there is to eat anyways and <laughs> and yeah housing is uh pretty pretty affordable but yeah on the way out it was relief i remember leaving i had to show them my vaccination cards and i told them i said you guys are really 
um, I didn't say the word bad, but I was angry. I said, you guys are um, not nice. You know, you're asking yeah. for the vaccination card on the, on the way out. And you know why you're doing this. Like, I was just kind of calling them out at this point because I was mm. not really afraid. I said, you, you know why you're doing this. You're doing this because you're looking for an excuse if somebody forgot their card. Because we're, we're leaving your country. Whether your country is getting out of there, it literally makes no difference to you whether I have my yellow fever card or not. Uganda can care about it because I'm going in there. Why would you care if somebody's yeah. leaving? It's like somebody's leaving your house after a dinner and you're like, hey, by the way, <laughs> do you have the flu? Well, yeah. you're leaving the house. What the heck? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, but then, yeah, Uganda is like, welcome to Uganda, big smiles. And they were super, super friendly. But I will say, though, the guy who brought me to the border, um, I, I was I hitchhiked with a, a bike to the border. Okay. And the guy was very kind. So again, it's it's this mix of like you meet nasty officials, but then very kind people throughout nonetheless. So I, I just want to make that clear, even though there are a lot of tough moments, and yes, corruption is annoying and it can get on your nerves, but there are still plenty of good people. And the, the gentleman who brought me to the uh, border, in fact, wasn't even going there, but he saw that I was walking and he offered a ride. Huh. for free to take me there was like maybe five kilometers but nonetheless he, he took me for five kilometers yeah and uh didn't ask a penny and it was a great guy so i just want to make that clear that it's this constant mix of good people and bad people but it's not just one picture not one black and white and then in uganda they were happy to see me totally different mood it felt like i was on a different planet much yeah. more laid back much more relaxed i don't they they were supposed to check both my COVID and my yellow fever vaccination. And I think they only checked my uh, yellow fever. And they said, like, oh, yeah, we don't even care about your COVID vaccine because we're so happy to see you. Welcome here. You're going to love Uganda. Got my visa on the border, 50 bucks. I told the guy, I said, wow, why is it so easy? Like, here, you're not even hassling me and everything is so smooth. And on the other side, it's so different. And he <laughs> said, well, yeah, we don't understand them either. Even when we deal with them, it's always problems. And we hear complaints from truckers. So even the the god ugandan yeah the ugandans themselves were like yeah we we have problems with them too we don't understand them but welcome to our country so <laughs> being in uganda felt amazing the the light the mood lightened up everything felt better everything felt better and very hard to summarize in a few sentences but any sort of final words for people maybe thinking about doing this type of trip in the congo um okay well I would say, okay, well, I'll give you some practical tips. If you can learn some French, because I think it's going to mm. give you a better experience, you'll get to talk to uh, people and people who can help you. And it will be very useful if you speak a little bit of the language, especially if you're planning to do it overland. You'll just get more out of the experience. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is really the the fear there are going to be moments when you're afraid you know if you have somebody because i i forgot some moments where i would have uh, between like ikela and uh and kisangani there were moments where i had armed soldiers asking me for cash like at the at the corner of a of a jungle path yeah and you know they've got machine guns on them and they're asking you for cash and you're alone and just be confident don't be overconfident but never show that you're afraid it learn to bluff learn to come up with whatever i know people who had fake un cards when they went to the drc no. and they yeah. would show these UN cards and pretend that they were part of the un and that there was a 
military convoy that was about to pass pass through. Everybody has to come up with reasons. I, I had people who had the number of high security officials and it's you need to come up with a strategy. Don't think that you're yeah. just going to go there like you're going to Vietnam and that you're just going <laughs> to... I know the podcast is called Wing It, but I think for the DRC, <laughs> you, you can't just wing it. You kind of have to have a strategy a little bit. <laughs> yeah, fair point, fair point. I'll take it. Like my strategy, for example, was... I mean, you can wing it. I mean, you can wing your strategy, but do have a strategy. So Yeah, yeah, at least <laughs> like have something. My, my strategy was the big contact in Kinshasa thing. That was my bluff. And I would, um, if you can have a fake business card, that can help. You, you can, I had a fake, I know this is going to sound extreme, but on my phone, I had a fake contact of the president with his picture and a, and a bogus number. And no I never way. had to use it. Uh. Yeah. But like, I think it's still there actually. I kept it in my contact. <laughs> so if things were going to get out of hand, I would just pretend that I, you know, the can't really call in the jungle anyway. But I could have pretended that I, okay, he's on my contact list, you know, FedEx Chica City. Here's his face, his number. And they don't really know who you are. But because you're so unusual, because you're a, a foreign backpacker in the middle of nowhere there, they don't know who you are. You might very well be super well connected and, you know, mm. be involved with mining and be connected to the top leaders. And they have no clue. But yeah. and that's that plays in your favor. Because they're not used to seeing you, they're just as scared of you that than you're scared of them. They have no True. idea who you are. You might be a mercenary who's super well connected, and you have to play on those strengths. So it's, 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 um, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, but it's a good uh, place to learn those uh, poker skills. Okay. Um, so Frank, I'm going to say it's very hard to summarize a three-month trip like that in a podcast, but I think we've done okay. We've got some. Fantastic stories, tips, uh, some of your journey. Uh, so I want to say thanks for coming on to the podcast again to talk about all your experiences and a very, very unique trip. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great, uh, great episode. I really enjoyed it too. And um, it's, I mean, what do you take away uh, from from what I said? Is there anything that uh, sticks in your mind or a lesson uh, or something? I think my takeaways are a combination of all the interviews we've done is that uh, sometimes it is good to maybe push the boundary a little bit and, and not be so comfortable in certain types of travel. So, you know, for, I'll give you a little example because of our chats, I do want to do maybe like one hitchhiking trip, one country, don't know where that is, but like I've never really done it. So that's my takeaway is to try to go to the, the next, thing for me which is going to be fun but a bit more challenging so i think mm -hmm. that's the one big takeaway i have from our chats and there's those other little bits as well but that's the main one is to maybe try something a bit new and unique to kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone yeah a little bit more yeah i mean uh middle east is already a new area for me so that's quite that's good you know new area different language different customs mm -hmm. Le lebanon was a, an interesting country uh, probably the most unique I've been to in terms of being a little bit outside your comfort zone. Um, yeah, so I think that's kind of taught me that, okay, sometimes it is good to push the boundaries a little bit. Right. And one thing I'll say um, is that because, you know, of course, like I said, it's hard to summarize three months in, in one episode, but 
just to reinforce some positive aspects about the DLC, um, the I, we focused a lot today, of course, on the challenges because there were a lot, and we, you know, they're a big part of the journey. But I will say, the two things I like the most about the DRC mm-hmm. were one, the nature. It, it, even though it's tough and it's an ecosystem that can be rough on your body if you're not used to it, and so forth. Nonetheless, I've never seen as much green as as when I was there in my whole life. You know, it's green everywhere around you, beautiful. Uh, wildlife, uh, birds, butterflies, you know, it is really surreal. It is a pristine um, forest mm-hmm. when you're in the, in the jungle. And the two, the second thing would be the people, meaning that I, I met some of the worst people I've, I've ever seen in the DRC, <laughs> but I've also met some of the best ones. And I could name countless names, but whether it's the Wafania priest or whether it's the pastor who told the guy to pick me up in the, in the canoe who didn't have to do that. The countless people who hosted me night after night after night when they just saw this guy coming out of the woods out of nowhere, like this police guy in Boyera, the commander, who brought me to his home and his wife cooked some, some meal for us and we chatted about his life as a police commander and what he was doing in the jungle. I mean, the list goes on and on and on very very good people the the guy who helped me when i had malaria and uh, you know yeah. i could have died there he gave me his own personal meds from his own uh private collection uh from his own stockpile and who trusted me that i would give the money to the priest once i made it to my money bag and that gave me his own his only driver and his only bike to to get there you know mm. It's, it's, it's a life-transforming experience because it pushes you to the extreme, both the extremes of the worst in life, the difficulties, and, you know, near, near death and suffering, but also the best, the, the trust between strangers who don't even know each other and who, who help you. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I think that comes across on this trip, but also the previous trips that we discussed as well, isn't it? I think that's a recurring message that we have from these experiences. Exactly. And I think part of what allows me to push through and carry through in those difficult moments is that I I always have faith that I'm, even if one day a police guy is shouting at me and, you know, it's a bad day and I feel tense and nervous. I just know that right around the corner in the next village, I might find a great guy who's going to be 20 times nicer and super friendly and we're going to get along well. So it's that faith that, there's going to be a good guy around the corner. Don't despair, you know? Mm, Absolutely. Okay, Frank, I think that's a good way to end this episode. I am sure you'll be back on for more adventures. And can you just remind the people, if someone wants to get in contact with you, to maybe ask a few questions about logistics, about doing that sort of trip, where can people find you? So the... There are different ways. One would be on uh, Facebook. My name is Xavier PG, X-A-V-I-E-R space PG. Uh, you can always post my Facebook uh, profile on sure. the episode. But otherwise, if people want to get in touch uh, by email, my email is fxpg1999 at gmail.com. Let me repeat that, fxpg1999 at gmail.com. People are welcome to send me uh, questions, messages, get in touch. I'm always happy to reply. Cool. And I'll put that email in the show notes. Is that cool as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. So people can copy paste that into their Gmail or whatever. Okay, Frank. Frank, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.